Brian Pillman passed away in his sleep on October the 5th, 1997, following a heart attack in his hotel room in Minnesota after a live event. Rumours, some of them offered television and some perpetuated by the WWF themselves, purported a variety of different theories as to a potential cause. But ultimately it's said that he passed away due to natural causes and a congenital defect that also saw his father pass away at the age of 50. He was found shortly after 1pm on the Sunday in Bloomington, Minnesota, along with several bottles of pills, muscle relaxers and painkillers. All of these were prescribed and there was no cause to believe that Pillman had committed suicide. After his car accident in 1996, Pillman had increasingly relied heavily on painkillers to combat problems with his ankle that didn't properly heal following the crash. Pillman was due to wrestle Dude Love on the pay-per-view, but plans had to be changed last minute with news only coming through of his passing just hours before the show had started. The pay-per-view went ahead with most matches going on as planned. The next night on Raw began with the 10-bell salute and both WCW and ECW paid their respects to him on shows that followed. For the sake of this show, we'll save our discussion about Pillman's career and life for the end of the programme to give it proper justice. from The Undertaker. 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 He just stepped on one hand. Incoming. He on the Incoming. Bad blood. Here we go. Oh, yeah, bad blood. Wait a minute. What? Oh my God, what is that? Wait, that's not bad. That's not bad blood. That's that's Madison Square Garden. That's May nineteenth, Madison Square Garden. What? This is you, Sean. And that that's that's Razor. And, and Big Daddy Cool Diesel. But who's that? Who? That's you, Triple H. Wait a minute. Hey, what is this? You were a bad guy. I was a good guy. You were a good guy. What are you doing in the? <laughs> Bischoff is a guy who's a big fan of hanging around studly guys with long hair and beards that smoke cigars and ride Harleys so that some of that can rub off on his little pansy-ass frame. So he takes that billionaire's money and he throws it around like water to buy guys that he can hang around with to prove that his Johnson is bigger than everybody else. Then we make a deal and get back together and you pay me, that's right, you pay me a whole lot more money the second go-around. And you know why, Vince? You know why? Because you need Jeff Jarrett. How dare you? How dare you, Bret Hart, blame the Generation X for your actions? Now, everybody knows the Grand Wizard there, Bret Hart, is racist to the core. You saw what he did to the nation's locker room. The Generation X agrees with the nation. This country was built on the sweat of a brow of a black man. And I accept that. The Generation X accepts that. But the Grand Wizard out there and the rest of his KKK buddies don't believe that. And now the Undertaker oh with a chair. And perhaps we will see poetic justice here. I don't know. It was Michaels who introduced the chair to begin with. Will the Undertaker strike Shawn Michaels? Michaels has had it Michaels has had it Michael's cranium just got 
Hello, my name is Bob Bamber and welcome to the Wrestling 20 Years Ago podcast, going back in the time machine to October of 1997 for Volume 1 of this month's show. Four volumes for this month, Volume number 2 takes us to WCW looking at Halloween Havoc. Volume number 3 takes the ECW looking at the latest action in Philadelphia ahead of their next pay-per-view. And in Volume number 4, when we tape it, we'll go to the UFC looking at their latest show. We're here in Volume number 1 to look at the WWF, including In Your House, Bad Blood, and a very busy month of action. I'm being joined by Craig Wilson. Craig, good afternoon. Good tidings, how are we? Very well, thank you Greg And Rory McNamara, Rory, hello Hello uh, Rory, kick us off with the news I shall Shawn Michaels and The Undertaker wrestled what might well go down as an all-time classic at the Bad Blood pay-per-view In a half an hour main event, Hell in a Cell match The structure that completely enveloped the ring contained the pair for the most part But did include a section on top of the structure And Michaels being kicked off it through an announce table it finished with the long-awaited debut of Undertaker's brother Kane, who came out dressed in red and black with a freakish mask on. Kane delivered a tombstone to Undertaker, giving Michaels the victory. The main event ran almost as a paradox to the rest of the card as WWF performers struggled through injuries along with the still fresh news of Brian Pillman's passing. Bret Hart and the British Bulldog won a flag match against Vader and the Patriot, although strangely a flag match that was won via pinfall. The Nation of Domination won a three-on-two handicap match against the Legion of Doom as Ken Shamrock wasn't deemed fit enough to compete and Owen Hart won the vacant Intercontinental title after Stone Cold Steve Austin interfered in a complete non-event of a match and the Godwins won the tag titles off the headbangers. WWF storytelling took a major turn this month as an angle involving the Hart Foundation, the Nation of Domination and the Shawn Michaels group, now called Degeneration X, drifted into rather strong racial tones. After a scene where the Nation's locker room had been vandalised, something which nobody, nobody explicitly denied doing, Michaels ended up accusing the Hearts of being racists, along with the line the Grand Wizard and the rest of the KKK. All of this, in some shape or form, is apparently building towards Michael v- Michaels versus Brett in Montreal next month at Survivor Series. Although the current plan seems to be to make Michaels as unlikable as possible to justify the reaction he's going to receive. It wasn't the only angle on TV that seemed utterly bizarre. The night following Pillman's passing, they aired a live interview on Raw with Pillman's widow, Melanie, which, if you're being polite, was probably in bad taste. Jim Cornette has started a weekly segment on Raw where he seems to shoot on everything and everyone. He bemoaned the quality of WCW's roster and writer Phil Mushnick for trying to exploit Pillman's death because only the WWF are allowed to do that. Jeff Jarrett signed with the WWF this month, returning to Raw in what was, you guessed it, a shoot interview where he bemoaned his treatment in both the WWF previously and WCW, and despite no clear indication yet as to whether he will be cleared to perform, the WWF has already penciled in Steve Austin for a match on next month's pay-per-view. 
And a reminder that we're on Patreon for five bucks a month. If you'd like to say thank you or get early access to shows, you can do so at patreon.com. Thoughts slash wrestling 20 URS links in the podcast description and on our website onto the ratings for a month and a number, but another bumper month for Nitro starts on September the 29th as Nitro to four rate intervals 2.7. Coming off of the bad blood pay per view, Raw got up to a three, but Nitro held steady at 3.9. For the rest of the month, it was Nitro dominance as on October the 13th, Nitro to 3.8 to Raw's 2.3. On October the 20th, Nitro had a massive 4.6 to Raw's 2.9, which in the head-to-head hour was one of the highest gaps ever. Well, at least it was, at least until the October the 27th, the night after Halloween Havoc, as Nitro at 4.3 to Raw's 2.3. No TVs ahead of the pay-per-view, so we'll jump straight into our review of In Your House, Bad Blood. Roy, can kick us off with the results. Yep, here we go. The Nation of Domination, comprising of D'Lo Brown, Carlo Mustafa and Rocky Maivia, defeated the Legion of Doom in a handicap match. Max Mini and Nova defeated Mosaic and Tarantula in our first bonus match. The Godwins defeated the Headbangers to win the WWF Tag Team Championship. Owen Hart defeated Farouk to win the vacant WWF Intercontinental Championship. In another bonus match, the DOA defeated Los Bariquas in an eight-man tag. The team of Bret Hart and the British Bulldog defeated the Patriot Invader in a flag match. And in our main event, Shawn Michaels defeated The Undertaker in a Hell in a Cell match to become the number one contender to the WWF World Heavyweight Championship at Survivor Series. Yeah, it goes without saying that there were a lot of late changes made to this card. Obviously, I think Pillman was actually scheduled to be on two of the matches. Um, and, and not only that, there were, there were guys that were clearly competing that weren't particularly in the mood to, um, looking particularly at the... An Owen Hart match, it was essentially just a complete wash. Um, and then you you frame all all of that on a show that from a pure viewing perspective, you know, from a quality standpoint, while understandable, was probably on pace to largely be a disaster. Um, and then you get a, a, a main event that stands up against perhaps anything we've ever seen. Uh, Craig, what do you think of this show? Uh, it's it's pretty boring beyond the, the main event. It's kind of like the polar opposite of WCW shows at this time where the undercard was uh, absolutely smoking hot and then you get to a really, really terrible lumbering main event. It's just the complete opposite. Craig, uh, Roy, sorry. Yeah, up until the main event, this was a truly terrible show. One of the worst in your houses. <laughs> well, in your house is always going to be bad. One of the worst pay-per-views, I would go as far to say in our entire run, but for once I can actually forgive them because of the circumstances. All of the six terrible matches, including the flag match, we could all forget about with that stellar, stunning, amazing main event, which I'm really looking forward to talking about. But this event was, I'm afraid to say, a dud. Yeah, um, you know, it's not to make like light of it in the circumstances, but this this card, like so many this year, could have easily been this undercard could have easily been bad without what happened. Um, you know, but again, I think it it mitigates some questionable last minute changes. It mitigates guys that weren't in the mood. It mitigates matches that weren't ready, and it mitigates matches that perhaps had less build than they would have liked. Um, but yes, when we're talking about a, a quality standpoint, and if you can try and remove yourself from the context, this was a flat show. And I suspect that would have been the case anyway. Um, but equally, by the time the main event's over, you're 
you know, you've kind of forgotten everything else. So we'll uh, we'll see how we go. We open with a big power display in St. Louis, Missouri. We've got a big crowd in. Vince McMahon repeats the announcement about Brian Pillman's passing, though they did, they did break that on the uh, on the free-for-all. The Nation of Domination, Rocky Maivia, Karma and D'Lo Brown with Farouk versus the Legion of Doom, Hawk and Animal is our first match of the evening. This was meant to be a six-man tag, but Ken Sharrock was uh, not fit to compete as he was spitting up blood due to an injury uh, sustained against Farouk. Uh, D'Lo drops down and gets a big boot in and a clothesline from Hawk. All LOD early doors. Rocky tags in to big Rocky sucks chance. He's not happy. Animal hits a drop kick and a shoulder tackle. Rocky gets Hawk in his corner, but he quickly scarpers. A double close line from Karma and Hawk. They both know sell it. Big power slam from Animal. Rocky jumps in the ring and downs him with a DDT. That's the turning point in the match, which enables the nation to get on top. While it was until Animal flattens Dilo with a close line, but still Dilo regains the control. You get a long rest hold from Maivia. Animal escapes, but Rocky gets the knee lift in. With the ref distracted, Rocky gets a low blow in on Animal. Hawk gets a hot tag, but the ref misses it. The nation almost pick it up with a splash from the top. Animal gets a forearm in and crawls his way to the hot tag. D'Lo elbow drops Rocky in an attempt to break up the pin, which gets a big pop. The LOD unload on Maivia, but out comes Farouk. Distraction gives Rocky the chance to hit an Urinage slam for the win. Craig. Oh God, there really isn't much, much here at all. This is a, a pretty basic tag match. I think at best you could have... You could have hoped for this being quite an entertaining brawl, but I think we're sort of slightly spoiled by the fact that at this stage in in the run, the Legion of Doom, eh, Legion of Doom, Legion of Doom eh, are incredibly bland, and yeah, there's, there's not really much to like here. Rory, yeah, I think Legion of Doom might just have used uh, no Salo D actually, <laughs> and I, ne- I never thought I'd live to see that day. Um, yes, and at least Craig didn't mean it. <laughs> uh, that, that's, that, that's the truest form of jest, isn't it? When you can do it without even without even realising it. Uh, yes, this match though, not great by any stretch of anybody's imagination. I feel like I have to do my LOD suck speech every single month, and as they are now the tag team champions, I might well be doing it for even longer. So yay for that! Little going on here. The only thing I will say of any real note is that Rocky seems to be getting a lot more confident in the ring these days. He's really feeding off the hate he's getting, because I think it's very legitimate heel heat, and he's playing it up, which can only help him. And this was that actually fairly rare occasion where the team with the advantage actually win the handicap match, so that I did appreciate. But otherwise, nothing doing here at all. No, um, it, it's probably the least noteworthy thing to happen to the nation all month. Um, the Legion of Doom, I mean, they're, they're trying with LOD, but, it, it, you know... This is nineteen. This isn't nineteen eighty-seven anymore. You know, I I don't know the LOD and act that I particularly want to get behind. But then again, as we'll see later in the show, there's there's not much else in this uh, in this WWF tag team uh, division at the moment. But yes, a very forgettable opening match, very formulaic, very paint by numbers WWF tag team match um, involving you know guys I don't particularly care about in a match with not particularly much riding on it, and that's what you get. Vince struggles through another announcement about Brian Pillman. He says they scramble together to put this midis match together in its place. So up next, it's Mosaic and Tarantula versus Max Midi and Nova. Tarantula gives Max a big kick and then we start flying. Nova ducks a shot and Tarantula hits his tag partner, Mosaic. Mosaic and Tarantula screw up again as Mosaic looks sad. This is more punch kick than you might expect. Max tags in, hits a big arm drag, then misses the crossbody. 
Nova rolls through something for a two. Max nearly takes it with a hurricane mark. Body slam for uh, for Tarantula. He goes for it and it goes to the top and hits a big splash onto Nova. King is desperate to be let loose and start telling short jokes. Tarantula press slams Max Mini onto the announce table right in front of Lawler, who is deliriously happy. Nova just about hits an arm drag. He nails a drop kick that sends Mosaic flying. Max ends up on the mat and Lawler is so happy. Max goes to the top, hits a crossbody, then does an arm drag into a crucifix pin of sorts, and the faces win. Rory? I really had a lot of fun watching the Max Mini match on our last pay-per-view. I had no real fun watching this one, I'm afraid. You can tell that this was, in every sense, thrown together. The four of them just happened to be back. They weren't due to be on this show. Four of them just happened to be backstage. They were told to go out there for six minutes. And it worked against the very style that these guys actually do give us. And at their best, it's riotously entertaining. But the whole point of this sort of match is that it is meticulously planned. Uh, the high spots are extremely complex. They're thought about and they're discussed a long time until they go out there and do them. Here they had to be spontaneous and they didn't really have anything. The crowd weren't with it. Again, the finish was flat. It would have been hard to watch this if it had not been for King's antics. So when a chubby man who wears a crown in his mid-40s is making very bad jokes about short people and laughing at Max Mini hitting a table you know that your pickings are going to be slim. And these four just couldn't get it done in the ring for the reasons I've illustrated. And it was, again, a whole load of nothing, which is disappointing because I like these guys, specifically Max Mini. I do think there is ways you can go with this guy. He seems to work up some sort of affinity with the crowd, but uh, it didn't happen here, unfortunately. Craig? Yeah, I I sort of agree with... uh everything that Rory just said, but particularly the last bit, the, the fact that there's something in Max Mini undoubtedly, but this this just didn't really work. Uh, they botched things. They, they tried hard, everyone being, optimist, uh, yeah, being optimistic about things, but they, yeah, it was brutal in places. Jerry the King Lawler's jokes were quite tired, but still the best part of it. Uh, I particularly liked uh, Bob Dune, you're right up there. You mentioned, and I forget the, the fella's name, you referred to someone looking sad, and that was basically how I felt throughout this near seven minutes. Yeah, um, Rory is right. This this kind of thing really doesn't work unless you know what you're doing, unless you've got a plan. Because it's not like if you're if you're wrestling a punch kick star, you can kind of go through the motions while you work out your next bit. These guys are just kind of winging it. And when you're, you know, when your big action is your high spots, going through the motions is kind of just stand there and try to make it up as you go along. Didn't really work. I'll give them the pass for it being such a, um, being on such a short kind of notice period but it just didn't work um Lawler's entertaining enough in short bursts but again I, you know wasn't particularly clever it was more just the conviction which he was telling them more than anything else um and yeah two for two on the forgettable matches so far we get a plug uh narrated by Todd Pittengill who's no longer with the company apparently he um he had talks with WCW this month and he asked for three hundred thousand dollars a year which I laughed at quite a lot um, because Rey Mysterio doesn't earn $300,000 a year, which which may say more about Rey Mysterio being underpaid than Todd Pettengill being potentially overpaid, but there we are. Um, 
The best part of the whole thing is that Pettengill says the Austin shirt is 20 bucks, but the graphic says it's 25. Speaking of inflating the figures, Vincent Mann announced to the gate of 21,000 fans. Out comes Sonny. She screams down the mic and introduces the contenders of the next match. It's the Godwins, Henry O and Phineas Ives, Uncle Cletus versus the Headbangers, Mosh and Thrasher for the WWF Tag Team titles. Headbangers clear the ring. Cletus rallies the troops. Thrasher mimics milking cows towards Cletus. At least I think he is. Thrasher does something to Phineas. I'll tell you what it is. We didn't see it. Turns out it was quite a nice head. This is actually. They go for a double team flapjack. Phineas under rotates and lands on his head. A double team suplex onto Phineas, but he kicks out. I'd like to take a second in this review just to reiterate how bad both of these teams are. There's a pin attempt that the ref gets distracted. Henry with a slam, but only gets a two. Marsh gets a hot tag. He levels Cletus off of the apron and hits a big slam. Thrasher powerbombs Marsh onto Henry for a two. Mosh comes off of the top, Phineas catches him into a powerbomb, Cletus holds Thrasher back, and the Godwins win the tag titles. With a post-match beatdown, Howard Finkel announces that if they don't leave the ring straight away, the Godwins will be stripped of their belts. Craig? I think Rory needs to sit down, I'm just about to slag off tag team wrestling. This was absolutely horrific. (laughs) Sorry, I didn't give you the things I I'm as ready as I'll ever be, here we go. The, the sort of the biggest problem here is that the fans, in judging entirely by the crowd reaction, no one cared about either team here. So you're not going to get anyone to care about the title change. And the match went far too long. The guys don't seem to click, despite the fact that they seem to have wrestled on and off in various guises for what six to eight months. Yeah, hopeless, hopeless stuff. No heat. Crowd didn't care about the title change. Not great. Not great at all. Rory? Yeah, it's a weird one. The headbangers have been over, but the crowd just weren't with them at all during this one. Um, I said on the special show we did when we talked about One Night Only last month that the headbangers seem to be, again, much like Max Mini, naturally popular with a lot of people. And as such, I thought that they could have run with the belts for a little while longer, but we had to transition them to the Godwins to get them to our friends, the LOD. And this match was, of course, awful. The headbangers are... Poor workers, as I've said, that's why I sort of enjoy them so much. I think they know it. The Godwins are just terrible with no redeeming features whatsoever. Only two things I can even remember about this match, Bob, if you hadn't done the play-by-play, and that's inexplicably the new Tag Team Champions Godwins graphic that appeared. It's the chilling truth there. And the finish, which they completely and utterly messed up. It was supposed to be a runner into a power bomb, but it was a nothing into an even bigger nothing, which just looked awful. So these two teams, they don't have the wherewithal or the smarts to come up with anything different. So they went with that as the finish, despite it not, not even looking like it would have broken an egg. And it was a fitting end to, again, just utter zip, I'm afraid. Yeah, um, you know, I, I couldn't even hide my disdain for the two teams involved in my, uh, in my match notes. Um, it's just dull. Both of these teams are, offer very, very little. You know, it's like... You, you, you still have to remind yourself that they've had Doug Furness and Phil LaFall under contract for a year, um, and they kind of half pushed them for a few months, and then, well, they're not getting over. Well, shock horror, they're losing matches, they're not getting over. And it's like, you know, you this is the best you've got, and LaFall and Furness have, have been sent down to ECW, uh, admittedly to find some edge, which they probably need. Um 
But I'd take Doug first and Phil LaFawn wrestling under masks as, you know, wrestler one, wrestler two over these two teams. Um, you know, that's that's where we're at right now. Um, the Godwins continue to be really bad. And what's strange is that they've, you know, as we'll see later in the month, they're working out kind of, they're, they're finding a voice now for their programming in terms of where they think they want to go and the kind of strength and tone they want their characters to take. And it seems to be working or it seems to be, you know, making sense for their main event acts. And yet you look at their tag division and we've got these two teams and, and, and they're, an, an LOD team 10 years past their prime, if not more. Um, you know, I know it's not easy to make that kind of reset, but this isn't it. Um, yeah, I don't like either tag team. I didn't care about the tag title change. Um, what was the point in giving the headbangers the tag titles last month if you were just going to take them off them? I don't know. Um, but, I, you know, it's a toss-up between whether the headbangers are any worse or any better. Um, I don't really know is the answer in short. We get a long video package looking at the last few weeks of Steve Austin, including him stammering Vince McMahon. Owen Hart cuts off Michael Cole. Owen wants Austin to hand him the Intercontinental title. The best part of this promo, probably the Owen 316 shirt. Jim Ross says it's time to salute some of the legends of St. Louis wrestling. He introduces Gene Kaniski, generous pop. Jack Briscoe, Dory Funk Jr., big pop for him. Harley Race, a big pop. Terry Funk, another big pop. Out comes Sam Mushnick and Lou Thayers. This is turned into a proper documentary. They're basically, they had video packages about each of the guys before they came out. Um, and the Thayers and Mushnick one at the end was a real documented one, a real long one as well. Um, and yeah, uh, Craig, uh, yeah, a well-received segment that, that that certainly worked for the the live fans, and I thought the WWF did a decent job. Even again, it was just you wonder whether they were filling time here, whether this would have aired, wouldn't have been on the pay per view had things all gone normally. I thought this worked out. Uh, yeah, I, I would have I would have expected they would have heavily hyped this uh, locally in the lead up to the event to, to push some tickets. It was nicely done. They they really sort of made these guys quite rightly seem uh, like a big deal, but I can't help but think this is. Pretty boring TV, uh, but like you say, uh, Bob, the likelihood is this probably wouldn't have aired uh, had it not been for for other circumstances. But you, but you're totally right. The the packages made these guys into uh, a big deal, and it was been really nice for some of the long term uh, wrestling fans in the area that attended the event. Roy, yeah, this was nice, and on a sombre day, this was a bit of levity that I think we needed. Just two quick things I really want to say about this. One, I think they did this in the right venue. If you remember, go back a few years to Slambury 1994, WCW tried to do something like this in Philadelphia, where old-timey tributes don't normally go over very well. Here, in a, a hotbed of decades past in St. Louis, Missouri, was exactly the right place to do it. And secondly, I was just struck in these very well-put-together video packages for everybody, just how often the letters N, W, and A were being mentioned on WWF programming? Yeah, um, yeah, it's a fair point. It's well, it's not like WCW particularly embrace that heritage anymore, and obviously there's no lineage now. The NWA has, has kind of split off from, um, for even go back a few years when the NWA title was still being defended on WCW television. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's well done. I don't think it was brilliantly. 
um, entertaining. But again, we, we we have to accept the circumstance that they were in, and if they did shift this onto the show, I don't know for certain that it wasn't going to appear on the show. Um, you know, it's not those video packages were probably could have been used just to be played to the live crowd. Um, but yeah, it just about worked well. Um, and it says how much how much they had to shift around. This went about ten minutes or so, and, and amongst all the other things, that kind of shoehorn in. Um, but yeah, in the circumstances, a, a very well put together segment, I think. And you know, it, it's it's nice to do these things every once in a while, even if it is you know not entirely planned. Uh, we cut to Vince, who says there's no foul play suspected in Pillman's death, but they are concerned about a drug overdose. I I don't particularly know what this man gained by speculating here, although we'll discuss that later in the show. Up next, it's Farouk versus Owen Hart for the vacant, in, vacant Intercontinental title. Owen looks pretty sombre here, le- much less antics than normal. Austin Music's hits to a big reaction. He similarly looks a bit flat. He flips the bird at Owen, lobs the tart at Vince, and then gets into an argument with Sergeant Slaughter. Austin rings the bell, then gets on the headset that Vince was using. Austin tells Vince to call a match. Time for this match is one hour. God help us if it goes the distance. Farouk mows Owen over with a shoulder tackle, then throws him in the ring. Austin grabs a walkie-talkie. I mean, why not? Owen goes to the back of Farouk's knee. Austin goes to the Spanish headset. The French announcers. The match really is just secondary for Austin dicking about on commentary. Farouk gets a shoulder breaker in for a two. He attempts a leg drop from the second rope. Owen moves, then goes for a sharpshooter. Farouk blocks it, then uh, hits a pass slam for a two. Out comes Jim Neidhart. Farouk hits a spinebuster for a two. Austin smashes Farouk in the head with the title. Owen pins him, and that will win. That will do that, and Owen wins the title. Um, Craig, just a, a, a non-event really, but again, as we keep saying, in the circumstances, you know, I don't think these guys particularly wanted to be out there, and so they kind of had to do what they had to do. True, uh, but there was clearly a plan to have these guys go to the to the final, and it did just seem like they'd never. Competed in the same ring together. They just, it just didn't click at all, which, uh, which makes you quite grateful that it didn't go at the time limit. Certainly, uh, but yeah, uh, yeah, I do, I do agree, Bob. It's probably quite tricky to to be too critical of uh, of much on this card, except perhaps the Godwins versus the Headbangers. But yeah, uh, it, it was what it was. Uh, a non-event. They could probably use Farouk more than they are, but uh, yeah. Uh, it is what it is, and Owen Hart's Intercontinental Champion. It's it's not the worst thing we've seen, but I mean, it's not going to make any match of the year list, is it? Not quite, Roy. Yeah, to quote the Blackadder episode, "Amy and amiability." Paraphrase. I'd like to thank the WWF for introducing me to a brand new experience: uh, a bad Owen Hart match. This was terrible. Owen, for understandable reasons, clearly didn't want to be out there. I wouldn't even go as far to say he went through the motions. Farouk carried the match until the Austin belt shot. This was all about Austin's entertaining, if somewhat out of place, antics on the outside. I mean, I think you put it best there, Bob. You Should Austin really be the sort of person who's dicking about? Yes, it, it, watching it was good fun, don't get me wrong, but is Austin supposed to be good fun? I'm not sure he is. I mean, okay, what did he do? He got Ray Rougeau to speak English on the air for the first time in three years. Yeah, that's not really renegade behaviour in my book. But yeah, this match existed purely to get the title on Owen. So whenever Austin's fit, which might well be for Survivor Series, Austin can win it back. But yeah, terrible match. And again, like I said in my uh, first thoughts on the show, I can understand why. But it was awful. Yeah, it was. Um, Yeah. 
Um, I was going to repeat myself. I, I, I probably won't say much more, but yeah, um, you know, clearly they weren't attempting anything. Um, and Austin was clearly sent out there to be a foil. Again, I, I kind of agree with Rory, but you know, the whole thing was such an odd event. But they had, you know, ultimately, I think the reason they were out there was they're like, well, we need to forward this storyline on, and that's why what happened happened. Um, and the important thing about this match was the finish. Um, you know which kind of, it kind of played into both the program they were trying to build with Austin and Owen and the program they're trying not to build with Austin and Farouk, i.e. Austin cost Farouk the title because, quote-unquote, he could be scared of him, which is something the nation can say. Not They're not busy with other things. Um, anyway, move on. They're saying the flag match coming up can be won by pinfall or submission, so I kind of wonder what the point is. Uh, in another match that was a filler, we get... Los Fariquas versus the DOA. Yes. We start with Sc- Jose and Skull. He and Chains hit a double big boot. Savio gets out to crush in the corner. The rest have to go at Savio. Brian Lee, whichever one he is, hits Jesus with a big press slam. Chains hits a trio of clotheslines in the corner before Savio hits a running wheel kick. Despite there being a live situation in the ring, the ref randomly drops to the floor to deal with something to open up a spot for the Fariquas to go three on one. Next slide in my notes simply reads, this match is still going. Savio charges at Brian Lee in the corner. He moves and Savio lands on the turnbuckle. The match breaks down into an eight-man brawl and the fans, briefly at least, pop. Crush hits a big boot, but the ref is distracted. Jesus, I think, hits a DDT. Crush hits him with a backbreaker for the three. Rory. When these eight guys are punching each other, it's mildly fun. When they're doing anything else, I hate it. (laughs) Craig. <laughs> uh, God, it's nineteen ninety seven and someone's winning with a backbreaker. What's what's going on? It's it's really bizarre because as much as someone in the company loves this gang war stuff, the fans watching at home hate it to that same extent. This was just terrible, really dull. You've got eight guys in fact eight guys in the ring and what if you're being charitable, six of them are terrible, and two could maybe do something. So yeah, you're you're when you're looking at a match, and Savio Vega is one of the best competitors. You know that you're pretty doomed, and this was doomed. It was dull. Eight minutes of just garbage brawling, some poorly executed big man moves, and yeah, crush wins. Yay. If you're being charitable, six of them are terrible. <laughs> well said. That's um, where we are, guys. I'm, try I'm, try th- I'm trying to think who, bar Savio Vega, I'm being positive about. Is it maybe Jesus? Oh, I don't know. Brian Lee is mediocre, right? His I mean, offence Lee... looks actually quite good. Yeah, I mean, if I was going to... If I had to, like, you know... If I if I'm on a sinking ship and I can take one of them with me on the lifeboat, I'd probably take Brian Lee. I, 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 I've got no way to go with that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, why, I, why? I'd leave them all behind. Is it a lifeboat for mediocre wrestlers? Apparently. <laughs> it's like Noah's I'd Ark, two bad wrestlers. <laughs> I'd, I, I'd leave them all behind. I'd, just, I'd save myself. And the referee. I don't know. Um, yeah, you know, it's it's bad when they plan it out. It's bad when they know. It's you know, it's it's just so rubbish. Um, you know, like they, I like how they went. 
let's take one of the worst characters we've got and put three more guys alongside them. And the best part about that line is that you don't know which of these teams I'm talking about, and we're going to move on. In fact, you do. It's pretty obvious. They put the flags up for the flag match. The fans popped the US flag going up. Basically, I, I, I think the one line I read about the rationale behind it not being a flag match with, or now being a flag match with pinballs and submissions, was that they worked out the poles weren't strong enough to climb. Um, okay. Right. Well done, lads. Anyway. Moving on next, it's Bret Hart and the British Bulldog versus Vader and the Patriot in a flag match. The match starts so the Americans can get to the ring. Bulldog gets thrown to the steps. The flags are being used, just not official ones, are the ones that Bret and uh, Patriot carried out. We're still brawling on the outside with Bulldog paired off with Patriot and Bret with Vader. As the Americans get in the ring, the match formally begins. Patriot goes for the flag, but Bret low blows him. Vader flattens Bulldog, then spits in Bret's face. Assuming this match was changed to pinfall and submission, so Brett would spend the entire match working over the pole with submissions. I quite like that, actually. I quite like that joke. Brett tags it. That's, that, that's more for me than anyone else. I quite like it. Brett tags in and Vader overpowers him. Patriot gets a good look at the flag as we get our first good look at the cage. Or Sally, that's hung above the ring. Brett goes for a tarbuckle figure four. Vader charges over to stop him, but the ref moves him away and Brett locks it in. Brett gets a sharpshooter in mid-ring. Patriot actually manages to do a full reversal and gets a large reaction until Bulldog just mows him over. We get all four guys in the same corner. Patriot ends up on top of the pile and goes for it, but gets thrown off by Davey. Vader flattens Bulldog for a two. Brett ties up Vader for a sharpshooter. Vader gets to the ropes and Patriot headbutts it. Patriot goes for a figure four on Brett. Brett goes for the Canadian flag, but Vader kind of just hugs him away from it. Vader sets for a Vader salt. He goes for it, but Bulldog moves, and holy fuck, Vader actually did a Vader salt and landed on his feet. Um, I don't have his knees, admittedly, but that was excellent. Brett grabs the bell and smashes Vader with it, and it seems like the ref missed that entirely. Back in the ring, Brett hits Vader with a DDT. Vader double clothesline gets a big pop. It's the uncle slam, but Bulldog picks it up with a leg drop. Or picks it off with a leg drop, sorry. A fan jumps into the ring. Unlike what happens at WCW three weeks later, that was not a plant, and the Bulldog and the ref see him off. Vader, Vader bombs Brett. Bulldog gets involved. Brett rolls up Patriot and wins the match. Uh, Rory, uh, um, we talk about walking wounded in the news. This was a match. I think three of the four of them were injured going in. It kind of showed. Absolutely, and I don't think this was probably going to be the full 25 minutes because of that, but that's, against circumstances, that's what we got. And it was listless. When Brett phones it in, he really phones it in. He hangs up after five seconds. He wasn't feeling this one. This was the first time in a while we've had a, not just a, 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 he's been excellent this year in general, Brett in the ring when he's been called upon, I think, in my opinion. Now here, for whatever reason, psychology seemed to beat him. When was the last time we ever said that? He's lying in a submission hold. He's, he's, he's barely even selling it. He's just reaching out for the Bulldog to tag, not making himself look like he's in any danger whatsoever. I thought, what was that about? Is he just intentionally dogging this or what? Have they just not, again, have they not thought this match through? And it was a really long 25 minutes in the worst possible sense. One of the real problems I have, and I talked about it, touched on it briefly last month, I still don't think that Team USA versus Canada it hasn't really got to its second stage. We're still really at the Yabu, your country sucks. No, your country sucks. Crowds have been saying that for years and years. Now the good guys and the bad guys are saying that to each other. 
I still don't really get a sense of what they're fighting for. And I suppose, in a way, it was quite symbolic that the match didn't end by somebody reaching for the flag. But that finish was terrible. Brett beating the Patriot with a reverse roll-up of the tights. That's the finish you do if he's going over the Patriot in seven minutes on Shotgun Saturday night. Not in a 25-minute tag team match second from the top on a pay-per-view. So, yes, the four guys here, Vader aside, which has been rare this year, just didn't seem to be at the races. And this country-v-country feud is rapidly running out of steam because nobody seems to want to take it by the reins and really go to phase two with it. Craig? Uh, Yeah, uh, difficult to disagree. Uh, As always, what what Rory says, this was never intended to be 25 minutes. He'd have hoped it didn't deserve 25 minutes. And as he says, it was a very, very long 25 minutes. I don't believe that the Bulldog or the Patriots should be near the main event level. And after the last year of Vader's run, he doesn't feel like a main eventer. So this was never really going to feel like a big deal. And the other member who is a main eventer phoned it in. So, yeah, it was never going to be a win. Uh, they, could, they could have done better, but, uh, yeah, it was it was a bit bit flat to, to be charitable. And, yeah, it was just, yeah, just, it was there, but... Beyond that, nothing much else. Yeah, it went on a long time. There wasn't really much of a story or a meaning, uh, you know. Yeah, I, I don't have a lot to say about this match, actually. Like, it, it didn't drag all that much. Um, you know, the Vader matches are never that dull. Um, but when you consider the talent of the four guys involved and the notoriety to a point, um, I'd have expected more from these four, but yes, in the circumstances with the convoluted stipulation, you know, the, the whole, it's a flag match, but the flags aren't really involved was a really weird one, um, in that it, it kind of, I, I kind of almost wonder what it would have been better if they had just dropped the flag thing entirely and just had a tag match. That probably would have been significantly more coherent. Um, as it was, we just had a flag match without any real drama surrounding the flags, and we just ended up with this all four guys just aimlessly wandering around. Um, it didn't work, if we're being polite. Anyway, they lowered the hell in the cell. That looks bloody impressive. Doc Hendricks is backstage with Sean Michaels, Hunter Hurst Helmsley, China, and Rick Rude. Sean cuts the promo. They almost hand it over to Hunter Hurst Helmsley, but they cut away before he starts talking, which is quite funny. Sean Michaels comes out, leaves with Triple H, China, and Rick Rude versus The Undertaker in a hell in a cell match. The cell, it should be said, looks tremendous. Sean is shitting his pants. Now he's locked in there with just Undertaker and the referee. Undertaker stalks his prey, walking the perimeter of the ring. Michaels runs straight into a massive big boot. Michaels unloads, punches in the corner. He does a flip in the corner, then Taker mows him down with a lariat. Taker comes off of the top rope with a punch. Undertaker gets uh, hits a leg drop for a two, then gets some big air on a back body drop as Michaels' feet clip the roof of the cage. On the outside, Undertaker slams Michaels into the cell wall. He does it again. Michaels walks back walks back into a big clothesline. Taker gets Michaels into a powerbomb type position and drives him into the corner of the cage. Hits some body strikes by the ring apron, then drives him in from the ring post to the cell wall twice, or Undertaker so far. Undertaker hits the cell wall and Michaels gets the advantage for the first time. Taker gets on the apron, Michaels charges across the ring and drives Taker into the wall of the cage. He follows that with a tope into the cage and then gets an elbow drop by climbing the cell. Very nice, all of that. Michaels grabs the ring steps and hits Taker across the back with them somehow. 
He has the space before, oh sorry, somehow Michaels has the space before a pile driver onto the ring steps. He gets gobby with the cameraman who gets in his way. Michaels climbs to the top and it's a double axe handle. He grabs a chair and drops it across Taker's back and then again Michaels lobs the chair away after that. Undertaker rallies with some rights. Michaels ties him up when the ropes. Taker gets a boot up. Undertaker throws Michaels over the top and he lands square on the cameraman. Michaels then kicks him a few times for good measure. Michaels falls Taker with a forearm and kips up. Slaughter comes out to help the down cameraman. Michaels drops an elbow from the top. Hebner unlocks the door to let the cameraman out. Michaels hits a switch in music. Undertaker gets up and Michaels jumps through the door and Taker follows. Taker catapults Michaels into the cage. He drives his head into the cage as Michael is bleeding and again. Michaels starts climbing the cage. Taker follows and we both end up there. Michaels goes for a pile driver on the roof but Taker drop back drops him instead. The cameraman is right under that. It's a great shot. Someone says, ah shit, but it's not easy to work out who. Taker body stands Michaels on the roof then throws him right near the edge. Michaels hangs over the side and Taker kicks his hands off and Michaels falls through the Spanish announcer's table. They're both down now on the floor. Sean is a bloody mess. He finally returns to the ring. The door is relocked and Michaels is pouring in blood. Taker chokes hands Michaels from the top. He grabs a chair and just smashes it over Michaels' head. Out goes the light and some weird music starts playing. Fuck me, it's Kane. Wearing a black and red mask with a black and red bodysuit on, he rips off the cage door and stands nose to nose at Undertaker. He raises his arms, drops them down and fire comes out of the turnbuckles. He tombstones the Undertaker, the lights fully return and fuck me, that mask is scary. Hebner comes to... Kane knocked him out at one point. He makes a slow count as Michaels crawls over to Undertaker and Michaels picks up the win. My notes simply end. Job fucking done. Helms in China drag Michaels out of the ring so Undertaker can be alone in the ring for the close. Rory. Well read, Mr. Mr. Bambasur. Right there, this match. Okay. With the possible exception of Hogan v. Andre at WrestleMania 3, and maybe, maybe, Brett Bulldog at SummerSlam 92. I think we have just seen the most successful main event in WWF history. Easily one of the best, very possibly one of the most successful. This match set itself so many targets. Undertaker needed to get his after two months of Michaels fucking him around. Michaels needed to be an abject coward. Michaels needed to sneak out the win somehow. There needed to be amazing jaw-dropping spots. They needed to debut Kane. And on top of all of that, the extra pressure of needing to save an absolute dog of a show. They hit the bullseye on each and every one of them. There's no point in me picking out individual parts about this match, because again, much like the very different but equally five-star match we saw in WCW this month, you just need to watch it and enjoy it. But I am going to mention a couple. The first 10 minutes were Undertaker kicking Michael's ass, which was the perhaps all too rare these days situation where the WWF were giving the fans what they wanted to see. This hateful, cocky prick finally getting his and getting his big. I don't think he got a single offensive move in in that 10 minutes. Undertaker destroyed him. And yes, it was great to see. When Michael's did 
did manage to get back into the attack himself, so get back into attack, get into the attack for the first time. He was using his wiliness, his speed. It wasn't just toe-to-toe. He managed to quickly get in a tope. He scampered up the uh, scampered up the inside of the cage and dropped an elbow. He dragged Undertaker across and hit a pole driver on the steps. It was a case of him doing anything he could do outside of his normal wheelhouse to try and keep this keep this guy down who wants to, quite frankly, destroy him. And I still don't think Michaels often gets enough credit for him doing things in a match, which means he's not just a showman and a performer. He's amazing at both of those, but his grasp of psychology and understanding of how matches work, I think, is massively undervalued. And this goes towards showing that the guy is an arsehole, but he's, he's fucking correct at what he does. And the final ten minutes were a picture. Michaels gets annoyed, he beats up a cameraman so badly, the cameraman needs to be taken out. A logical reason for the door to be opened. Take note, Halloween Havoc. He then hits switching music on The Undertaker. Now, under normal circumstances, I would raise my eyebrows at best for somebody's finisher being killed like that. But not here, because again, Undertaker isn't going to let a little kick to the chin keep him down, because he wants to beat seven bells out of this guy. So he gets up straight away. Michaels has never seen anything like that before, so what's he going to do? He's going to try and escape. The door's open. Quick, I'm going to run for it. Simple storytelling at its very best. And then when we hit the big stuff, Michaels doing that award-winning blade job, which I can only presume was in mid-air when he was catapulted into the cage. Again, Michaels, is, his head's been scrambled, literally metaphorically. All he can do is climb up to the top of the cage. It didn't feel like a contrived spot again. They rumble up there. Michaels takes an astounding bump, and quite a dangerous one. If you watch, he nearly missed the table, so that could have been very nasty indeed. And he is completely done. He's covered in blood. It's an example of blood. Emphasising a match's danger, by the way. Not a blade job for the sake of a blade job. Undertaker's finally got his man. The door is locked. And here comes a bloody cane. With that eerie music, that grotesque mask... Ripping the door off his hinges. Undertaker not knowing any idea what to do. He's staring quite literally death in the face. He's prayed for a tombstone. And Michaels, with his last gasp of energy, gets the win. A perfect, perfect story-led match. Which on their best day, only the WWF can do. Magnificent. Craig. Jesus, I don't think I've really there's there's too much more to add. I, I would like to sort of praise the structure itself though, because the it, it genuinely looked terrifying when it came down. You you looked at that and you're like, Jesus, this is going to do do a lot of damage. Uh, Rory mentioned the the sort of cameraman taking the bump and that allowing the the cage door to open and, and that being logical and storyline said. But for me, the, the my takeaway from that moment was just like. Another example of, look, this is how sort of dangerous this is. It just added to the sort of danger feel of this match. And yeah, I mean, Rory's absolutely spot on. Both both of them brought the A game. It was hugely entertaining to see uh, Michaels like this. He was, in, he was in top form, trying everything away, and Undertaker was just swatting him off and throwing him around. It was, a, it was an incredible way for sort of big man to take on... Uh, a, a smaller man in, the, in this case and after an incredible sort of hyping of Kane's debut the WWF 
absolutely delivered in terms of the impact he made. He also looks terrifying, admittedly not quite as terrifying as the structure, although that mask is quite scary. Uh, but yeah, uh, incredible. O- off the scale, incredible. You don't need to watch Bad Blood for anything other than the last 30-35 minutes of this. Uh, amazing match. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we talk about all the stuff going on that might have hampered her in the card. It's almost like, you know... I don't want to make trivial of it. It's also like no one told Michaels and Undertaker. Like, you know, they uh, they, they just went out and uh, and wrestled what might be the perfect match. I sort of say it's the best match, although you could you could probably make the case. Um, just note for note, it was bang on. Like, you know, storyline wise, it was perfect from a from a, a selling and a mechanical standpoint. It was perfect. I don't think they missed a single spot. I like the. The innovative stuff they did inside the cage, I thought they did a good job with that. You know, there's only there's so many things you can do with that, but between Michael's Undertaker, they probably picked a lot of them off. Um, you know, I think when we contextualise this, what happened at Halloween Havoc a few weeks later regarding, um, you know, escaping the cage, like they, they, they made a big deal out of the, 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 the cell being a structure that you couldn't get in and out of. Um which was a little bit, well, because it technically happened twice, because, you know, Kane comes down and rips the cage door off, but that that was a way of getting over Kane, and the, the story they used to, to to get Michael's Undertaker out of there kind of made sense too. The stuff on top of the cell was excellent. Um, you know, that was a really good set of bumps. They didn't overdo that, and there's only limited mate you can do, I suppose. Um, Michael's going through the table was great. They got them back inside. They built to the finish, and then it's Kane. And the the fascinating thing is, is that the the the, the Kane thing hadn't been pushed really for about what since SummerSlam. I don't think it, it's barely been a story. Certainly in September. Um, and you know, I, I wondered on, on on another month or, or another time if they'd have been playing for this a bit more. Whether they, you know, if this had been WCW, they'd have been ramming the Kane thing down our throats before he debuted. Um, and as it was, they kind of rammed it down our throats and then kind of let people forget about it. So that when he came back, Vince McMahon can go, "That's got to be Kane," and everyone's like, "Oh yeah," but they weren't. It wasn't like it wasn't like one of those things where in WCW where they'd been building the Kane thing up so much that the fans were going, right, well, this isn't going to end until Kane arrives. They'd kind of successfully laid that seed and then kind of let us forget about it. Um, perhaps the perfect match in certain respects in that it was 10 out of 10 in almost everything it set out to be. Um, really, really well done. I thought the Kane debut was great. I mean, what a, what a fantastic look that is. Um, you know... We talk about Goldberg having the perfect look on WCW. Kane's not far off. Um, that just like scary as fuck mask. Um, if you can't get over looking like that, then you can't get over. Um, really, really good job. Tremendous by everyone involved. Um, yes, it will certainly be in the discussion for match of the year. Let's say that. Uh, and that brings to a conclusion our review of In Your House Bad Blood. Okay, your overall thoughts and a score rating out of 10. Uh, th- thanks for clarifying that at ten because I, I tend to get this wrong. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Other than the uh, other than the main event, like we said, there's nothing much to write home about. It's difficult to be too critical because of what happened on the day, but I still would probably just give this maybe a, at best a five out of ten. Uh, it would it would be lower had it not been for the Pillman stuff, but th- this this 
main event is just off the, off the wall incredible. So yeah, five out of ten, almost exclusively because of the main event. Roy, yeah, I almost feel a, a, a bit unfair at giving this a mark, but rules is rules and all that. Forget everything up until the last 35 minutes. You don't need to see it for any reason whatsoever, unless you are an old-school NWA fan. <laughs> I thought I'd say that about the WWF. Yes, it's just nothing doing here. People who, for reasons I completely get, their heart was not in it. Yet, yeah, the last 35 minutes, you owe it to yourselves to watch. Your lives are incomplete without watching Shawn Michaels versus The Undertaker at Hell in a Cell and in your house, Bad Blood. So for that and that alone, I'm giving this event a 4 out of 10. Yeah, um, yeah, I'll give it a 5. Um, circumstances being what they are, um, it's very difficult to give a show with as good a match as this, anything less. Um, you know, there's nothing... There's nothing truly terrible on the rest of the card, although a few things skirt pretty close. Um, it's not offensive, it's not, you know, horrendous. Um, but yes, it is the, the perfect main event. And uh, for that, I think, yeah, 5 out of 10 is probably about right. All right, still no actual audio, because we, 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 we're moving into a live TV uh, review. Uh, Roy, I'll just hand the show over to you um, for the purposes of the first Raw after the you. As Craig opens a can. Excellent, Tommy. Thank you, Bob. Yes, the 6th of October, 1997, Raw is War. And this one felt like a switch had been flicked. There have been exciting Raws in the past this year. There have been memorable, notable ones. Yet this one was, for want of another expression, completely batshit insane. About a million billion things happened. And not only that, each and every one of them were relevant, put storylines down, advanced other storylines, and really meant something. So this is probably a contender for, for all its flaws, as we will get to one major, major flaw. One of the, incredibly enough, shows of the year. And I'm going to do my best to take you through it. Following the sad passing of Brian Pillman yesterday, Raw on the 6th of October begins with Vince in the ring, inviting the audience to join the WWF in paying silent tribute while the bell is tolled ten times. The entire roster are on the ramp for this, with the notable exception of Michaels and Helmsley. I must say, I couldn't actually see Steve Austin there. I believe that he was. Maybe he was just standing in the back, didn't want to draw attention, understandably so. But Michaels and Helmsley were absolutely not there among the rest of the roster, paying tribute to Brian Pillman. The show proper begins, though, with Michaels and Helmsley. And China there in the ring with Michael Cole. Now, I know we don't have any brain surgeons in that truck, but this is a television studio per se. Do you think, Vince McMahon, you could get one of those idiots in your truck to send out my performance at Bad Blood? Here we go. Right, here's bad Blood. Wait a minute. What? Oh my God, what is that? Wait, that's not bad. That's not bad blood. That's that's Madison Square Garden. That's May nineteenth, Madison Square Garden. What? This you, Sean? And that that's that's Razor. And, and Big Daddy Cool Diesel. But who's that? Who? That's you, Triple H. Wait a minute. That's, hey, what is this? you were a bad guy. I was a good guy. You were a good guy. Brilliant. You were, what are you doing in the? That's. Wait a minute. I Wait a minute. That's a. That was supposed to be Vince McMahon's biggest day. The first time Madison Square Garden had been... So oh, it's off the street. Oh, Vin, man, what's the matter? 
That subject's still a little too sensitive for you, Vin Man. Vinny Mac, what's the matter? Come on, what's the matter? Is your dad rolling over in his grave? I hear the family traditions of the McMahon has it come to an end because me and my buddies made an ass out of you. Come on, you were an ass long before I made one out of you. Come on. Oh, God, now I know, I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying. Sean, damn it, how many times have I told you? We've had enough of this crap. What? Oh, here we go. He might fire us. Look out, he's gonna fire us. He ain't gonna. Business today. You know something, Vince? I've sat back. Oh, very fitting. Hit the hard music back in the truck. They're burning my ass out here. Somebody sell Quick, get us out of here. Help, get me out of here. Quick, get us out They're of here. They're burying me. They're burying me. Hey, you thought you were burying yourself before. Bringing that idiot out here is even worse. During the entire break, we have been subject to a most disrespectful diatribe. Boy toy. We welcome and you back. USA, you can go ahead and look at your big hero. Because this is what it's come down to. You should have no self-respect for yourselves because you're looking at somebody that's got no respect for anything or anybody. Shawn Michaels. Yes, Brad Hart. You're a disgrace to professional wrestling. You know, I'm a second-generation wrestler. I paid my dues like a lot of second-generation wrestlers. And you are nothing but the lowest form of scum that I've ever come across. Please, spare me your tears. Shawn Michaels... You're nothing but a degenerate. And I think I know, as the rest of the Heart Foundation knows, what the HHH stands for in HBK. You're nothing but a homo. And that guy there in the green shirt is nothing but a homo. Oh, I'm no queer. You may have barebacked your way to some kind of main event, one pay-per-view after another, but the fact is, I make more money than all three of you guys combined in the ring. And this here is what it's all about. And until you have this, I don't care what you say or what you think, but you will never, ever, ever be the showstopper until you take this thing away from me. He gives an official hello from the click, which turns out to be a wedgie. Last night, HBK proved that he is the very best sports entertainer in the world today. And note, he does actually say sports entertainer. His status has now been upgraded from mere superstar. He is the one and only icon. Triple H confirms that to be the ever-loving truth. Ah, oh, you big yuck. 
Sean is the man, the showstopper, and the main event. Michaels then goes to treat us to action from Bad Blood on the Tron. But instead of that, we get camcorder footage of the MSG incident from last year, which we talked about in our May 1996 WWF show. Wait, that's Razor. That's Big Daddy Cool. I was a good guy. You were a bad guy. HBK then runs over to the announce desk and taunts Vince over it, and suggests that McMahon was an ass long before Sean made one out of him that day. And now the hearts show up. Michaels won't be the showstopper until he takes the title off Brett. That won't happen because he's going to run the click out of town. We learn that Brett is up against Triple H tonight, but the three of them basically just want to taunt each other with gay jokes. And here is Sean's very charming retort. Brett Hart, I've got two words for you. Suck it. The hearts just sort of disappear at this point, and then Michaels rabbits on the fucking yokes about various stuff which is completely lost again on the audience something about expansion or whatever I don't really know he finally comes back at the end by closing it somebody gave him the go home signal and he actually paid attention the click owns this business and at Survivor Series we will own you Bob what the hell was that oh boy um yeah like it was you know (coughs) As was noted in the uh, in the sheets this month, yeah, there was there, there was talks about drug use a lot, and I think the uh, the person near the top of the list this month was probably Shawn Michaels, as he didn't seem to be all that with us at various points during the month. Um, this was just Shawn Michaels just seeing how big of a cunt he could be, wasn't it? <laughs> wasn't that just the wasn't that just the entire month? Was just Shawn Michaels being this really irritating bastard? Um, like I don't think necessarily much of it was all that entertaining. Like, Shawn Michaels significantly overacting and trying to be almost far too clean for his own good, which for a guy that usually is okay on that regard is a bit of a step. Um, They show the clip of what happened at MSG last year. No one reacts except Shawn and Hunter. You know, know, Vince is the butt of the joke. The audience doesn't really know what's going on. Um, You know, because the whole thing now is that we shoot and the idea is, well, we just shoot and it doesn't matter if anyone notices it, even though it's ridiculous and then Brett comes out and we get this just like you know Shawn Michaels not all with us and Brett Hart trying to hang with him is not a great promo exchange they start doing all the you know the 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 gay stuff you know ha ha very funny you and the two guys in the ring one of the two being China hilarious um that kind of stuff Brett says I earn more money than you Shawn makes a particularly bad retort to that um, and then Brett makes a challenge to Triple H without saying his own name, and he basically says, I want him to face the best there is, the best there was, and the best there ever will be. So Sean, think he's being clever, goes, so to be clear, are you actually challenging him? Because that wasn't funny at all. Then Brett buggers off, and Sean just carries on, and then, you know, that kind of... I, it, Almost embarrassing would be my summation. I, you know, like... It, it was it's it's better than boring, but I don't know whether it was good. What do we say, Craig? I, I really liked <laughs> uh, Bob's description of it almost being like Sean was told just to be a cunt, which just made me chuckle. Just the idea that sort of on the script there was instructions and parenthesis saying be a cunt. Uh, but yeah, I, it didn't really make much sense. I, I, I don't think if unless you read the PW Torch or the Wrestling Observer, then you would have got 
a lot of the references. I would imagine a lot of fans uh, sitting there would have been quite bamboozled by it all. Uh, it, it was pretty stupid, pretty offensive. I can't imagine Bret Hart wasn't terribly enamoured with the idea that he would have had to have called Shawn Michaels and Triple H and, I guess, China uh, homosexual men. Uh, but yeah, it was just... I don't know, I, I, I didn't like it. Uh, it just... Yeah, yeah, it was just there as well, I guess, but... Yeah, I'm, I'm not entirely... You can be edgy without just being needlessly offensive, and this just felt like it was just being needlessly offensive. Yeah, this was just... Yeah, I agreed. This was just Michael's shits and giggles, wasn't it? A day after a truly a, a sensational performance, which we've rightly praised him for, he then goes and effectively just scrubs it off as if it never really happened. Yes, OK, well, we've got a plaster on his head... Wow, sell it a bit more, mate. Come on, you've been through the war of all wars and you've got a plaster on your head. Yeah, very funny. And showing the MSG incident stuff by accident. I mean, who cares? Who cares? Nobody in the audience understood what they... You know, just, you paid for your tickets to come to see the show and you're rewarded by watching grainy camcorder footage of people high-fiving each other from the middle of last year. If you, even if you get the context, I mean, it doesn't prove anything. Yeah, argue what the MSG incident was. So what? Why does that make me want to see Bret Hart versus Shawn Michaels at Survivor Series? Okay, so Shawn Michaels legitimately got one over Vince McMahon by doing that. How does that sell one extra ticket for the pay-per-view? It doesn't. And plus the fact that Helmsley just looked like the ultimate tag along there. He, he, he looks so out of place, and I think he knows it. Not that Michaels was particularly funny here, but um, Helms just comes across as a total foil. Ugh, he's, I was going to call him Ernie Wise to Shawn Michaels' Eric Morgan, but I don't think that works on any real level, actually. But uh, moving on. And Brett comes out, and they just scream and shout at each other. Uh, there's accusations of homosexuality, which I can't believe we're doing that in October 1997. Grow up. And then Brett just sort of just disappears after half-challenging a match. Shawn is left to just... Uh, effectively praise how wonderful Diesel and Razor are without really doing so. And then it just sort of ends by saying the Click are going to own this business. What, or what this, again, this clearly wasn't pre-planned. It's yet another example of Vince just being in absolute thrall to Sean in the wrong possible way. He lets him get away with absolute murder because Sean has for at least three or four months now, possibly longer, he's just got Vince over a barrel. Uh, if, Vince, if Vince steps out of line with Michaels, as ridiculous as that sounds, then Michaels just threatened to make a journey down south, and that's it, game over. Vince has got to show some bloody balls in this situation. He's letting Michaels run roughshod, and it was a 20-minute segment. 20 minutes took him two breaks worth, which accomplished absolutely nothing but making Michaels and Helmsley look like complete dicks and doing nothing to sell me on a match that shouldn't even really need selling. But that doesn't mean you need to be complacent when you've got Sean V. Brett supposedly coming down the pike. So after that very long 20 minutes, we do finally get some action. Well, it's actually the headbangers against the Godwins in a lumberjack match, but you take what you can. This is a non-title match. Uh, the ref gets bumped and everybody, yes, everybody outside gets in for a brawl. In the confusion, Mosh, Mosh rolls up Pig for the win. Now Miguel takes on the returning Mark Mero. Yep, you heard me, Mark Mero. No wild man, definitely no Johnny B. Bad. Sable, however, is still very much Sable. 
Mera with a shaven head wins with a new move he calls the TKO, which I've described as a Death Valley driver into a neckbreaker. Dave Meltzer keeps on calling it a diamond cutter, but it isn't really. I don't think well, we're well, really the strange. End, the end of it's a diamond cutter, right? Well, I suppose so. A, a cutter is a cutter. It's. I think people are taking that a bit, a bit too literally. I don't really think we're talking gimmick infringement here that much. It, it, it won't come up at any point during the rest of the month, so can I take this opportunity to point out that it seems like they told Mark Merrow to get his hair cut. <laughs> yes, indeed. And by the end of the month in the sheets, it says they've now told him to grow his hair back. Like, that's the kind of thing you can reverse in, like, two weeks. Um, I, I kind of think Merrow's new looks quite good, um, you know. But the big problem he's got is that he will not get over while Sable's in his corner. Um, and we'll, it'll be interesting to see how they work that out. But go, on, Rory Carroll. I don't uh, think we've got. I quite like his. I quite like his new finishing move. I think, other than Sable, that's the only redeeming quality about Mark Miro. And he actually got to win with the new move, which he didn't do at SummerSlam last year. But you're absolutely right. As long as Sable is still, as long as Sable is still Sable, Mero will always be Mero. And again, everybody knows it. Okay then. Oh boy. We then get to hear from Jim Cornette who is about to give us his own views on, oh yes, the NWO and Eric Bischoff. And as you're about to hear, does he ever. This is Jim Cornette, and the views that I'm about to express are not necessarily those of anybody else but me, but they ought to be, and as a matter of fact, they probably are. You know, a lot of things in the wrestling world make me cranky these days, especially the way that some talent is treated and some talent is looked at by not only the promoters, but the wrestling fans as well. For example, a man like Arn Anderson, who just had to retire from this sport after giving it his entire life because of an injury that he suffered. A guy like Nature Boy Ric Flair, who in my opinion is one of the greatest talents in the history of this business. Guys like Mankind, Cactus Jack, Dude Love, whatever you want to call him, great talents in the WWF or WCW, but who gets a lot of the attention from the wrestling fans especially? Guys like the NWO. The New World Order. You know, all the fans think these guys are so cool and so sweet and so funny. Well, as far as I'm concerned, the NWO is like a bunch of guys meeting out in the backyard in a clubhouse in a tree. They're guys who all they have to, they got the easiest job in the world. All they have to do is go out there and be themselves. Childish, obnoxious, adolescent guys with a case of severe arrested emotional development and a fixation on trying to act macho. You got a guy like Kevin Nash, 40 years old, trying to act like a teenager. As far as I'm concerned, the biggest no talent in the business, he's got Six moves, no mobility, and enough timing to come up, cover up for some of it. But what he does is he goes around and he manipulates. Kevin Nash had a multi-million dollar promotional company, the WWF, pushed him to the moon to make him a star, and then what does he do? He leaves, after he gives his word to stay in, so by the way, he's a liar too, he leaves and he goes to WCW for a big contract. Why? More on that later. You got a guy like Scott Hall, who's a good wrestler, but good's about it. He's the best of the bunch, but he had the same million dollar promotional company make him a star after he'd been in this business 10 years without putting three asses in a seat. And what does he do? He goes to WCW for a big contract. Why? More on that later. And then you've got a guy, what, a six, one, two, three kid. His name's Sean Mal- Waltman, whatever you want to call him. Well, as far as I'm concerned, the only reason that he's employed is because the other guys think that he's funny when he gets drunk and throws up on himself. He has the distinction, in case you haven't noticed, of being the only guy since this wrestling war got started that was released from a valid contract from one company to go to the other side, which shows you how valuable he is. You know why they're all employed? Why they're all in the spot they are today? Because of Eric Bischoff, the boss of WCW. Not the NWO. Look at the credits on their pay-per-view if you can get one for free. The idiot's name is on it. He's the boss of WCW. He works for Ted Turner. And he throws a billionaire's money around just like water so that he can have guys that he likes to hang out with. Because even more than being a mark, yeah, for his own face and his own voice, Eric Bischoff is a guy who's a big fan of hanging around studly guys with long hair and beards that smoke cigars and ride Harleys so that some of that can rub off on his little pansy-ass frame. So he takes that billionaire's money and he throws it around like water 
to buy guys that he can hang around with to prove that his Johnson is bigger than everybody else's. And that's the sole reason that the NWO guys are employed. I think, me personally, that it's about time that the wrestling fans and the promoters, all of them in this business, started recognizing guys like Nature Boy Ric Flair, like Arn Anderson, like Cactus Jack. Guys who bust their ass, who work hard and have ability and have talent to get where they are instead of a bunch of guys that get to their spot by hanging around with the boss and sucking up. I'm Jim Cornette, and that's my opinion. Craig, <laughs> that was three minutes of Jim Cornette not pausing for breath, slagging off the NWO and Eric Bischoff. That is quite the strike from the WWF. They weren't hiding behind anything here. Everybody was named. But boy, was yeah, it entertaining. Uh, <laughs> the, 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 there's no denying that, uh, that she's entertaining, but it's also somewhat somewhat confusing. I mean, you're sort of looking at the, the company going in a, a slightly edgier direction, and then you've got Jim Cornette's praising to the hilt people like Ric Flair and Arn Anderson who are sort of guys from the past and sort of attacking the NWO which is the is the hottest thing still in wrestling at the moment. I mean I can see that it was just sort of taking a shot at WCW and it served that purpose but I'm just I'm not entirely confused that some of the messaging isn't too too confusing. I mean Sure, they, like Kevin Nash is forty, and, but I mean he's still in the hottest act going. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, it was funny. I, I find Jim Cornette hugely entertaining, but he is quite old school, and I'm not entirely convinced he's the sort of message carrier if you're moving towards a sort of edgier promotion. And I guess maybe it just demonstrates that whilst some in the WWF want to make that journey there are others that are more reticent I don't know is that maybe one of the takeaways you can take from that very very possibly I'd say Bob as entertaining as seeing Jim Cornette in full flight is did this really even accomplish anything yeah we'll discuss it more um, during the second show because these things happen throughout the month um I don't know what they're trying to achieve here. Best I can tell, I don't even think Vincent Mann is particularly all that hands-on with these segments. Um, whether it's this one or one of the ones later in the month, apparently it's just a case of Cornette filmed it during the day. McMahon wasn't around when it was being filmed, but obviously as with all things on Raw, he had final sign-off on it um, and was happy for it to go in. Um, I don't quite know what they're trying to achieve, but I think we'll discuss this more during the second show when we've got a... Um, well, more to it. I said they're all throughout the month, and they're all—I don't say must watch. They're all bloody interesting, but whether they're actually productive or not, quite like uh, much of the stuff on Raw this month is another question. Yeah, we'll talk about them all as a, as a muchness a bit later on. But just to say, I really did like the line that the only reason Sean Walkman hangs around with them is because they think it's funny when he throws up on himself. Classic Cornet line. Yeah, a great watch. I didn't really disagree with much of what he said, but again. Hardcore fans, he's preaching to the converted. Is it going to win people over in any great ratings war? I'm not sure it will, but again, we'll come back to corner in a while. Uh, we have another match now, of all things. Yes, it's Rocky Maivia versus the British Bulldog. Once again, Maivia carries himself well, but David gets the clean win in a few minutes with the running power slam. The Foundation and the Nation scrap afterwards. More on that later on as well. Well, we begin Hour 2 with Austin in the ring with Vince. Austin attacked Farouk yesterday because he does what he wants when he wants. Stone Cold still has no medical clearance. Vince, however, does have a release form in his hand. 
Austin can return if he signs it, but it will also absolve the WWF of all blame if he gets injured again. Stone Cold says he's going to sign it, but only if he is guaranteed an IC title match against Owen Hart as soon as possible. Vince gives him his word, but Austin is not going to shake Vince's hand. Farouk interrupts on the Tron and badly stumbles over his words. He eventually gets out that Austin's ass belongs to the nation. Stone Cold responds, it ain't a race thing, it ain't a colour thing, it's a me kicking your ass thing. Owen is now on the mic and he can't wait to face Austin. For now though, the poor bloke is lumbered with Hawk. The interfering Henry Godwin hits Hawk with the horseshoe and Owen gets the pin. Joining us now, ladies and gentlemen, uh, in suburban Cincinnati, uh, the wife of Brian Pillman, Melanie Pillman. Melanie, thank you so much. I'm sure you're distraught, shocked, dismayed over this this news, and we thank you very much for for joining us tonight. I wonder, uh, there's a great deal of speculation, obviously, uh, when a 35-year-old man who is in competitive condition passes away. Can you please tell us to end whatever speculation there may be? Can you What can you tell us about what you have been told uh, as far as Brian's death is concerned? Um, well, um, apparently there was a problem with his heart, and uh, apparently his heart was put under a lot of stress for some reason, and um, I can't really... Uh, you know, tell you for sure what that reason was, but it was apparent heart attack in his sleep. And until uh, um, the tests all were back, uh, it, it's kind of inconclusive right now. But um, um, apparently, um, his his heart was under a lot of stress. It was there was um, some speculation last night when we spoke? Uh, Brian, because of his injuries, has had to take a great deal of prescribed medicine. There was some speculation that he may have taken too much if, in fact, that is proven to be the case, which it is yet to be. Is there anything that you would want to say to aspiring athletes who do get hurt and have to resort to prescribed medication, painkillers? Well, Vince, I, you know, I can't comment on whether that, you know, I know that my husband well, not only was he an athlete, but he was involved in a car accident, too, and he had extensive injuries from that. And, yes. Um, and, uh, and then went, after the accident, it was a lot harder for him. But um, I think all athletes, to a degree, um, experience a reliance on pain medicine. And, um, you know, I knew it was just a matter of time before um, it happened to someone. And um, fortunately, it, it was my husband. And um, I just want everyone to know that... Um, I hate it's a wake-up call to some, some of you because um, it could be your husband next or it could be you and, you know, you don't want to leave behind a bunch of orphans and like Ma my husband did. Melanie, how, uh, how are the children taking um, this news and, and do they understand? Well, um, a four-year-old doesn't understand. It. That's little Brian. Um, he doesn't understand why daddy's not coming home. But um, Brittany understands because uh, she's my adopted child and she's she's the um, biological child of my husband and another woman. And that woman killed herself two years ago. So Brittany's uh, lost her mom and, and her dad biological. And, uh, you know, she just screamed for about 15 minutes. And um, I don't know, Vince. It's hard. Have you had? It's really hard. But I'm doing... Have you had any opportunity to think about 
what you now as a single parent will do to support your five children. Vince, I don't even uh, really know what day it is, you know, so uh, I don't um, know what I'm going to do. Um, but I know that the outpouring of support that I've gotten from the fans and from the company um, is helping me go on. I mean, just everyone's calling and everyone's the fans and on the internet and um, people are just supporting me all around. And, and uh, but um, as far as what I'll do after this is over, I don't know. I don't even know, Vince. I don't know. Is um, how, how would you like for Brian to be remembered by WWF fans and fans all over the world? Since I would like Brian to be remembered as just one of the most compassionate and loving men ever and uh, the greatest father in the world, the best father in the world. And um, he also loved his business, Vince, and um, I guess you could say he lived for this business and he died for this business. And I hope no one else has to die. Our next segment is truly startling. It sees an interview via satellite conducted by Vince McMahon in which he is talking to the recently widowed Melanie Pillman. Can I just interrupt with two quick yep, go ahead. First of all, just to reiterate, this was a live segment. Yes. Um, and second of all, to say that this is a segment that was heavily promoted up until this point throughout the show, just to get that context in there. But uh, back to you as you were. Yes, that's very important, the hyping throughout the show. I mean... God, horrible. Anyway, I'll talk about that in a second. This is what happened. Melanie Pillman interviewed at the family home in the very same living room where we saw the Pillman Scott a gun number situation last year. So that was even that was only less than a year ago. Dear, dear me. Vince's first question to Melanie Pillman is all about trying to, and I quote, end the speculation about Brian's death. I'm not even sure there had been any speculation, but that's Vince McMahon for you. Melanie says that his heart was under a lot of stress and he was killed by an apparent heart attack in his sleep. Vince presses the point about prescription medication and that Pillman may have taken too much. He is clearly trying to shift any blame from the WWF here. Melanie doesn't comment on that and she starts to break down. Our four-year-old son doesn't know why daddy's not coming home. Then comes this very tactful question from Vince McMahon. Do you have any idea how as a single parent you'll support five children? For fuck's sake. She can't answer that either. But she wants her Brian to be remembered as one of the most compassionate, loving men ever. And the best father in the world. Vince finally offers his heartfelt condolences. And then we get what is, it must be said, a very nice video package narrated by JR about Brian's life. That video package was all we really needed to see here. Bob, this was... I, 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 I watched this once three weeks ago when it aired. I know what I think of it, but I don't think I can, I, I can really articulate it. Can you? Um, Dave Meltzer seems to be of the opinion that... I don't want to say he's saying they deserve a pass, but he's been kind of saying, you know, in, in times like this, you, you know... You, you have much more scope for making mistakes, and when you do, you're, you're much less. You should be much less liable to be punished by them, given you know the chaos of what's going on. I don't think it's a mistake to have 
the the widow of one of your performers, you know, less than 36 hours after they discovered him dead, appearing live on your television show. I think that's just malicious. Like that's not a mistake. That's not an error in judgment. Like that's not the that's not the kind of thing that a startled mind would instantly think to do. Like that's just someone that's you know we're going to come on to it in a bit, Jim Cornette having a go at, you know, Phil Mushnick for what he believes trying to exploit the death of Brian Pillman. Well, the reason Cornette's saying that, it seems, is because the only people that can exploit the death of Brian Pillman are apparently the WWF. Um, you know, Vince sets up this interview. It being live, I think, was a mistake. I mean, doing it was a mistake, let's be honest. Um, but Vince starts talking and the, the second question effectively is can you absolve us of any wrongdoing in all of this um, with a person that's not particularly in a great position to articulate anything let alone to try and clear and end the speculation as to what's going on well there is no speculation um, you know you're the ones that keep trying to crowbar in the fact that there's no foul play involved and you're the ones that are trying to say you know it's it seems to be of an overdose rather than anything we've caused. Um, you know, like they... It, it's not to say interviewing Melanie Pilm at any stage would have inherently been a terrible idea, although it probably would have been. Um, but to do it so quickly was hideously advised, and I don't, I don't put that down to mistake. Like, that's not an error. That's, you know... The, the fact that one person came up with the idea and the other five people in the, in the room didn't all go, that's a really shit idea, um, is quite startling. And it says a lot about how, you know, the WF are operating right now. And it also says a lot that I don't think this was the most startling thing that appeared on Raw this month. Um, and also just the, you know, the general line of questioning wasn't great. I mean, fair play to Melanie Pillman, who did a, a good job of, you know just trying to get through it, if nothing else. And, you know, she, when Vince said about, you know, what, you know, how would you like him to be remembered? She did a good job with that. But the question of, do you have any idea how you're going to support your kids? I mean, Vince, what a prick. Like, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's an insensitive question, full stop. Let alone an insensitive question to ask someone live on television. Um, I don't know what they were thinking, other than it being a ratings grab. And if you follow that conclusion, you can only say that this was an incredibly heinous thing to do. Um, and it, it it came across terribly. I don't buy the line that, oh, in such a short space of time, that is, you know, they will give them a pass. Um, I don't think that's right. Well said, sir. Craig, your thoughts? It's, I mean, it's absolutely Vince McMahon at his worth, isn't it? It's just a sort of... Uh, ratings ploy because uh, as Bob pointed out it's, it's hyped heavily through it and you're just like this is a, a woman that in the space of uh, just over 24 hours has lost her husband and the the father to her kids and and, and I think at least one or two instances that she was she was a stepmom to some of Pillman's kids so yeah she's totally left on her own this is totally exploitative and it's only just to sort of to to grab some uh, 
to grab some uh, ratings. And that's even before you see the hideous nature of, of the questions. The, I mean, the, the sort of, the, the, I guess the brass neck, if you will, of, of asking if uh, the WWF can be absolved of the blame like 24 hours after he died is, is just hideous. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's really tough to watch. She looks in a, a terrible place. She looks maybe like she's slightly on drugs, but you can imagine that it's either that, having to have taken something to get through everything, or she's just emotionally drained. She looks in a terrible place, as you would imagine. Vince McMahon's mind here is in a hideous place, and he's just got a really sickening, sickening ankle. And yeah, it's, 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 it's incredibly incredibly tough to watch. I guess if if the the company was in a, a better place either financially or actually as a, a good company they would be looking to support uh Melanie Pillman at this time rather than sort of exploiting her in, in the fashion that they did just for a, a wee bit of a hit on the ratings. Brutal. Not an easy topic to discuss. It's a made some excellent points on this one. Good work fellas. Yeah, man. I, I, I say the last thing I want to do is make light of this, but um, Vince McMahon, what went off in his head? This reminded me of, of all things, the film Naked Gun 33 and a third, in which uh, they're at the Oscars and Jane gets you know held hostage on stage, and you know, the guy has a gun to her head, and the director keeps zooming in on this, and the director then turns to the camera and says, "And they told me I couldn't do drama." I could only assume that Vince McMahon was doing a similar thing here. I mean, was this the first thought that came to him after he got the call on the Sunday that Brian Pillman was dead? That I'm going to try and call his wife? Because we know the, the possible situation, how Pillman's been over the last couple of months, prescription medication and all that. I'll tell you what, let's get her on the air tomorrow, live on television. We're going to hype the hell out of it, and we're going to make sure that nobody's going to blame us for this whatsoever. Oh, and while I'm at it, I'm going to ask how she's going to go ahead and support five children on her own now. Again, like as you say, Bob, did nobody over the 24, 30 hours say to him, anybody in the writing team, JR or Cornette or Vince Russo, anybody say, hang on, no, this isn't, we don't need to be doing this, okay? Professional wrestling is escapist entertainment. That's not to say it should be banal, that's not to say it should be stupid, that's not to say it should shut itself off from the outside world. But a recently legitimately widowed woman Desperately, and I think she did a, a sterling job in appalling circumstances, getting her to try to A, defend the WWF against a question that hasn't even been answered, and then secondly, all but mocking her over the fact that her husband has gone and she's got to try to support her kids. I, I miss the days when Vince McMahon was your uncool uncle who didn't know any of the moves, who wore that ill-fitting blue suit and just said, Welcome everyone, and what a manoeuvre, and so long everyone. I, I never thought I'd say this, but I miss that guy. I don't want to see Vince McMahon using a real death of somebody who by all accounts was very popular backstage as well, as some sort of ratings ploy. At the end of the day, you know, who, who gives a fuck about the quarter hours if somebody's just died? Now, is he really that hell-bent? Have WCW really screwed him up that badly that he would use a real-life death and drag on air? a widow, just so he can try to win a quarter-hour TV rating. It absolutely beggars belief. And like I say, I think this is not the sort of thing that we want to be talking about on this podcast, but Vince McMahon himself made it happen. 
And if I might say so, I think all three of us have done a very good job in discussing it. But uh, I think it's very much time to move on because it's making me angry. Okay, back to entertainment. The eerie organ music strikes up and here comes Kane. He wipes out the job as the Hardy Boys with a double choke slam and he then goes on to destroy them even further. Uh, he picks up Jeff, who takes a pretty riotous bump neck first onto the, uh, onto the ramp. Paul Bearer takes the mic. Everybody laughed at him, but you should be laughing at The Undertaker. Undertaker, this is your stop sign on your highway to eternity. We will take on and destroy everyone in the World Wrestling Federation until we meet you. Welcome to your worst nightmare. And after all that, we finally get to our main event, which feels like it was originally booked 2,000 years ago, of Bret Hart against, as is now being announced, Triple H. So that looks like it's his official name now. I believe I'm right in saying this, guys. For the first time in WWF history, the letters WCW actually get mentioned on air by Jerry the King Lawler, of all people. Uh, Bob, does that sound right? I don't think I've ever mentioned WCW before, even during the... Even when they had the Eric Bischoff letter on air in January 96? I think even then it was just a rival organisation, I believe. Did, did, it also, did it not make air during the Billionaire 10 segments? I don't think the letters were mentioned, you know. You might be right. Uh, I don't know. Can't, can't say I noticed it either way. Um, I think so. It sounds to me like the gloves are now definitely off with Jerry the King Laura of all people getting to say to Vince McMahon, you can't pretend WCW doesn't exist. There. Yeah, even Cornette didn't mention it in the rant earlier. Very, very interesting. Certainly more so than the match. Shawn Michaels agrees because he's picking his nose with the Canadian flag. Unsurprisingly, the foundation take exception to that and they come down to ringside. Helmsley dominates most of the offence, so you know what this match is like. The best thing about it until the finish is a fan throwing a paper plane into the ring. <laughs> Brett gets the sharpshooter, but China pushes the rope towards Helmsley. With the ref distracted, she punches Brett. HBK with a super kick lays him out. Brett then gets counted out. And after a show like that, I feel like I'm about to pass out. Bloody hell. Raw on the 13th of October from Topeka, Kansas begins with the Hart Foundation in the ring. Michaels and co. interrupt instantly. They mock Brett over his position on the card, his age, his skill and his... Uh, size. Michaels calls the WWF title a stupid piece of tin and then suggests that both he and Helmsley are the degenerates Brett thinks they are. He then goes on to officially name the group Degeneration X. You make the rules, we're going to break them. Owners about to square off against Carl, but Degeneration X join us on commentary. They spend most of the time enthusiastically munching on bananas. The match ends in a no contest as the foundation and NOD all brawl outside. Sean looks on with amusement and then pinches Carl's hat for good measure. Here are the Godwins. Tonight they will get rid of LOD once and for all. The Warriors will retire if they don't win the tag titles later on. Mosaic and Tarantula take on Nova and Max Midi. Max wins with a sunset flip on Mosaic. We see footage from Shotgun Saturday Night of the Road Dog, the real Double J, trying to side with Rockabilly for some reason. Billy appears to turn him down, but then Biss Honky Top Man with the guitar. Dog and Billy are now apparently a team. Flash Funk vs. Sean is scheduled next, but sadly we don't get it, thanks to Kane. He obliterates Funk with a one-handed chokeslam and tombstone. Bearer repeats his threats to the WWF and The Undertaker from last week. Now Degeneration X comes to the ring and HBK pins the 
prone flash as Helmsley counts to three. Michael celebrates by pointing at his crotch about a zillion times. Eight ball and scar against the Truth Commission, Sniper and Recon it ends in a DQ after Commission's interference. DOA then go after the interrogator, but he's impervious to every attack. Here's our weekly segment of Vince and Austin. In the ring, Austin will be reinstated in time for the virus series as long as he signs the contract. Steve wants McMahon to sign first. Both men do, and the match against Owen is made. Austin now offers up a handshake, and Vince reluctantly accepts. No stunner, at least not this time. Farouk interrupts on the ramp, but again he rambles badly. Austin ribs him for that and offers to stomp a mud hole in any of the nation. Myveer accepts, but he takes an instant stunner. Austin takes off through the crowd before the NOD can get retribution. Yoshihiro Tajiri versus Brian Christopher is now. Tajiri looks great, Christopher not so. Of course, Jerry's kick goes over. He holds the tights on a roll up for the three. It's time for another Cornet rant. Today, the object of his ire is New York Post columnist Phil Mushnick. He hates pro wrestling and pro wrestling fans, as we all know. Jim Cornet doesn't, so you can guess how this one turns out. Phil Mushnick, you can go to hell. Savio Vega is in action against Goldust, who is now back with Marlena. She distracts the ref and Sav- um, Goldust hits Savio with a loaded purse for the victory. Hunter is due to face the Patriot, but Rude attacks Wilkes from behind with a briefcase and, uh, well, coffee. Slaughter comes down to break up the celebrations, and he has a volunteer to take on Triple H. That's quick. Turns out to be Ahmed Johnson. The nation attack him anyway. Degeneration X make good their escape and then eat popcorn on the ramp until OD and Shamrock sprint down to chase the NOD off. The Warriors remain in the ring for their tag team title match with the Godwins. Cletus goes to hit Animal with the horseshoe but clocks Hog instead. Hawk with a clothesline and that's enough for the win. The LOD get the belts and keep their careers. The Godwins beat up Cletus as the show ends. I'm Jim Cornette and the views I'm about to express are my own, but as you'll see, they may be yours too. There's a man named Phil Mushnick who writes columns for the New York Post and for TV Guide. You've probably never heard of Mr. Mushnick, but you should, because he's had some pretty nasty things to say about you. You see, Phil Mushnick hates pro wrestling and he's not content just to change the channel. He doesn't want you to be able to watch it either. Not the WWF, WCW, ECW, nothing. And for the past several years, Mushnick has led a one-man campaign to have the wrestling industry abolished. Recently, when Ted Turner donated $1 billion to charity, Mr. Mushnick said the world would be better served if he closed up WCW. Phil Mushnick is the man who called for and spearheaded the media and publicity barrage over the federal indictment of Vince McMahon and the WWF on steroid charges. And even though McMahon and the WWF were proven totally innocent in a federal courtroom, Mushnick ignores that fact to this day and writes his columns as if it were a fact they were proven guilty just so he can continue his one-man crusade. He even wrote a column one time about the Madison Square Garden Network firing Marv Albert saying that the Garden should cancel wrestling matches too. But Phil Mushnick not only hates wrestling, he hates wrestling fans. Here's a few things he's had to say about you, and I quote, If not for America's lunatic fringe and the disaffected, WCW would be out of business. If you can tell me that you would bring an important child in your life to a pro wrestling match, I have no gripe with you because you clearly don't know right from wrong. And the overwhelming majority of the wrestling fans who contact me simply prove my point by flooding my mailbox with profanities, obscenities, and other acts that show them to be a disenfranchised subculture. Well, Mr. Mushnick, I'm a wrestling fan, and a lot of the people that read the New York Post and TV Guide are wrestling fans, too. And we don't enjoy being insulted by publications we pay money to read. We don't appreciate being told we don't know how to parent our children. We don't want a pompous, self-righteous man with a grudge sitting on top of Mount Olympus, looking down his nose at us and campaigning to take away the constitutional right that every American is guaranteed to freedom of speech, freedom of choice, and the freedom to enjoy whatever entertainment we choose. 
Those are facts, Mr. Mushnick, not rumors, not suppositions, but facts. You ought to try to deal in them sometime. And I think it's time that the millions of people that you belittle as subhuman every chance you get tell the New York Post and TV Guide what they think of you. But if this has been going on so long, why am I mad right now? Because recently, Phil Mushnick used Brian Pillman's death to call for another outcry against wrestling. And I quote once again, The problem is the mainstream media don't look hard enough at pro wrestling. Imagine if middle-aged pro baseball players dropped dead on a regular basis. This would be page one stuff, and a federal inquiry would be launched. Well, Brian Pillman was a friend of mine. From the time he was born with throat cancer, he had the courage to undergo 36 different throat operations. He had the courage to withstand the punishment of pro football in 10 years as a pro wrestler. He had the courage to come back from a car wreck that shattered his ankle and from a lot of other personal tragedies. And then one night he went to sleep in a hotel room and he died. And for you, Phil Mushnick, to use his death as an excuse for another call to action in your one-man vendetta against pro wrestling is more vulgar and more obscene than anything that you've ever falsely accused the wrestling industry of being guilty of. So on behalf of the wrestling fans, the wrestling industry, the friends and family of Brian Pillman, and anyone in this country today that denies any one man the right to force his morals and his beliefs on all of us and take away our constitutional rights, on behalf of those people, I say go to hell, Phil Mushnick, and try to reform things down there. Because we're doing just fine up here without you. I'm Jim Cornette, and that's my opinion. So back in for the second TV of the month, we're going to jump about a bit. Um, you know, it's a busy month of television. Um, we, we, we did discuss it in the first bit, but I think it deserves its own segment here, particularly the the uh, the subject topic of what Cornette was on about. But Cornette, clearly given, you know, two or three minutes a month, uh, a week, just to talk about whatever the hell he likes. Um, no topics seemingly are out of bounds, apparently. Um, and in the second week, he took umbrage with a, uh, a column by uh, in the New York Daily Post, I think, by a guy named Phil Mushnick, um, who basically used the story about Pillman as a as a way to looking at the wider issues surrounding pro wrestling. Mushnick effectively said that you know, in any other sport, if there's so you know such a high proportion of guys. You know, 30, 40 years old were, would die and there'd be serious inquiries and yet in, or inquiries, sorry, I'm not American. And yet in America, in wrestling, it's just kind of seen as the norm and all the stuff surrounding what's going on in wrestling. And Pill, and, and Cornette used that as a, you know, a launching pad for a tirade. He basically said that Mushnick was exploiting Pillman's death. And as I kind of said during the last show, Cornette basically implied, you know, nobody exploits Brian Pillman's death except us, which, you know, wasn't the wasn't the best visual of, of what Pillman was implying. Um, and yeah, just uh, create just a weird set of segments. The whole month, the Cornette stuff, you know, I mean, he, he, he went off on, on Mushnick again and he basically invited people to, to write in to complain about Mushnick and apparently the, the trade-off of all that was essentially, you know, kind of, he, Cornette ended up proving his point, or proving Muchnick's point, when he basically, um, all these letters came in, they were all like really incoherent, and all like, you know, death threats, and suck my balls, and stuff like that, you know, Cornette's, uh, Cornette was kind of opened the door for Muchnick to get his point proven exactly on the head. Um, but Craig, just a weird set of segments, I don't know what they're designed to achieve, or what they're designed to do, but I think it's just, WDF at the moment, throwing a lot of shit at the wall, and seeing what sticks. Uh, yeah, I totally agree. I was I was going to going to ask what I wonder what the 
sort of end point or end game of these when they were conceived was because it does just seem like Jim you've got a couple of minutes to talk about what you want there doesn't seem to be anything terribly strategic and as we, we I mean we obviously focused on the, the previous instalment at earlier stage in this show but but this one as you point out Bob it's just sort of proven much next point about wrestling fans when they just get all these sort of incoherent green uh, ink letters sent to them yeah it, 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 it's a bit bizarre I mean arguably in terms of um, in terms of Connect's delivery there, there is an argument for him to to have some sort of a segment or speaking part on on Raw because he's uh, he's hugely entertainment uh, hugely entertaining sorry but these aren't sort of channeled very well and I guess him having a free reign just means that you're going to get something a bit bonkers and for the second week in a row this was a bit bonkers. Roy, who cares about Phil Mushnick anyway? Do you really think he's the only journalist out there who thinks that wrestling sucks and? It's not something worth bothering about. I, I, I get the impression he's not he's not exactly in a field of one here. And it is understandable to think in the mainstream media, our old friend the MSM, that all wrestling fans are the dumbest human beings on the planet. Oh, would you watch that fake bloody rubbish for and all that? Which I still get day in, day out. I'm sure all, all, many of us do. Oh, but us wrestling fans, you know, we do have brains and most of us, you know, we know, we know how to use them. The sheets are well written. There are some well-portrayed outlets out there, including I would like to think this particular podcast, which gives the lie to the opinions that Mr. Mushnick and his kin have. It's it's just fish-barrel bazooka stuff. The thing is, you're getting Jim Cornette to do it, who I do believe feels this thing really intensely. If anybody badmouths the W word, he is going to be onto like a ton of bricks. I understand that. He's completely authentic. I do not dispute that he hates Phil Mushnick's guts. But we know that about Jim Cornette. And if you know who Phil Mushnick is, which before this month I didn't, you probably do know that about him as well. So, again, the WWF cannot afford to be this cavalier. I mean, pointing at somebody, in, you know, a journalist who doesn't like wrestling. Well, yeah, newsflash. Most journalists don't like wrestling. They don't understand it. They never will. Like Mick Foley said in his promos Captain's Jacket ECW two years ago, professional wrestling will never be accepted, and it won't be. Now, stop chasing off of that pipe dream and just concentrate on your own thing, please. Yeah, um, I don't know what the the plan of this really is. Um, uh, like, Cornette's got a platform, and... You know, clearly he's going to use it. And let's be clear, like some of these segments later in the month, this wasn't, you know, he was critical of Shawn Michaels and, and Bret Hart alongside, uh, you know, alongside the other guys as well, um, in terms of he was being critical of my, you know, he was critical of Hogan and, and Piper calling them the icon. And he said, well, we've got Shawn Michaels calling himself the icon. And, you know, he's not the performer he was or whatever he says, but at least he's not. 20 years over the hill, or that kind of thing. Um, and then, yeah, like this, you know, it's it, it's one of those things, like I I feel like it will fly over a lot of the audience's head, which doesn't really help. And I feel like it's just not going it, to, it, it's not going to have the impact they want it to have. I don't know if they'll watch this and go, yay, this is great television. Um, and I don't really know what it's for. Um, but, but there we are. We're live in Oklahoma City on the October 20th Raw. 
Things open up with a tag team match between Sean Rock and Ahmed Johnson versus Rocky Maivia and Karma. The LOD and the Nation look on. DX appear on the ramp with, armed with a fleet of signs with free things like I'd rather be in China and who booked this crap? Rude comes to the ringside for a chat with Farouk. Not long afterwards, he's able to hit shout with a briefcase, allowing Rocky to get the win. The Godwins then attack Hawk and Animal afterwards. Vince then says, Scheduled to join us later tonight is a former WCW champion. Vince then says, Scheduled to join us later tonight is a former WCW champion. We cut to Michael Cole in the nation's locker room, which has been coated with racist graffiti. There is also a Canadian flag present. Farouk re-emerges to give Vince a piece of his mind, then calls on calls out Brett to settle this. This means the match is related between the two faction leaders is taking place now. Of course, though, DX show up straight away. On the headset, Michaels accuses Brett of being a racist, but then he scarpers for the hitman can get to him. The match spills to the outside as the group's brawl Austin appears through the crowd to stun Farouk. Brett then strolls in the ring for the easy three count. And now we have a visitor. No music, no intro, and definitely no cowboy hat. It's Double J Jeff Jarrett. He takes the mic and shoots. He confirms that he turned down Eric Bischoff's contract offer. Eric, you booked me with a football player who can't even lock up, and his wife, because uh, who's given a new meaning to the phrase dumb blonde. Jeff has no kind words for Vince either, though, because his vision for Jarrett sucked. You can take with my baby tonight and stick it up your butt. Jeff then challenges all the big names in the WWF, even calls Austin the ringmaster. He ends with these chilling words. Vince, I hope your investment will be worth the headache. Brian Christopher takes on Mark Merrow. Merrow wins with a TKO after Lord's interference backfires. Owners you to face Sean in a title for title match. Some fine TV action here until Owen hits the end of Geary. Austin again comes through the fans, but the ref stops him at the expense of a stunner. Austin, Austin slinks off, then HBK hits Hart with a super kick. Brett takes the opportunity to run to the ring to beat the hell out of Michaels. DX and the Foundation join in for a ruck, and Slaughter and officials do their thing. The match ends in a no contest. Here's The Undertaker in a dimly lit room. As he looks into Kane's eyes, he didn't see the love of a long-lost brother, but the hatred of a man who has his mind poisoned. No matter what Paul Bearer says, The Undertaker will never fight his own flesh and blood. Dude Love is in the ring. He won't be against Bulldog's plan though because he is Kane. Dude tries his luck with a chair shot to the head but it has no effect at all and Phony gets two choke slams on the ramp for his trouble. We learn from Road Dog that Rockabilly is now badass Billy Gunn. Their journey will end with the WWF tag team titles. And if you didn't get that, you better page somebody. The new team beat the headbangers after Billy hits Thrasher with their boombox. Tajiri, as the caption now calls him, takes on Taka Michinoku. Both guys look excellent and Taka wins with the driver. Cornette's commentary is back once again. Today he reads message board postings from the fans to Phil Mushnick. Unsurprisingly, they all support Jim's case from last week. The WWF then even published the address for us to send letters to Mushnick. Wrong target, lads. We finish in the boiler room as Mankind offers to do what Undertaker cannot. He challenges Kane. Sorry, Vince, I know you wanted the big introduction. You want to be standing up here beside me, but I've got something to say, and I'm going to say it right now. Last week, on Monday Nitro, Jeff Jarrett was declared everything but dead. Since I refused to accept Eric Bischoff's offer, 
and re-sign with WCW. He did everything within his power to bury me. Being the coward that he is, he even hid behind his computer and announced to the whole world that he had pulled the offer off the table. Well, Eric, the only thing that you ever pulled from Jeff Jarrett was opportunity. Since I wasn't one of your boys, you put a lid on my potential. I was only going to go as far as you wanted me to. There was never, ever any ladder of success for me to climb. Very candid comments from uh, Jeff Jarrett. I was one of the youngest, most talented wrestlers that you had, Eric. But you let me drown in mediocrity just because my stroke wasn't strong enough. Look who you booked me with. An ex-football player who can't even lock up. And his wife, she gives new meaning to the phrase dumb blind. <laughs> Vince, don't sit over there and snicker and smile and cherish this moment because I left the WWF two years ago for the same reason. Eric Bischoff did it out of either ignorance or inexperience of the wrestling business. What were your excuses? Remember the gold tooth? The gold tooth. Yeah, you think it's real cute and funny. Remember the gold tooth? the country music star, Vince, you had a vision of what you wanted Double J, Jeff Jarrett, to be. And quite honestly, and all due respect, your vision sucked. Yeah, it, it may have. You booked me with a clown, a drug addict, Lord. A black man who can't even speak the English language. Vince, you tried to bury me and you tried to kill me off, but you didn't get the job done. I guess you figured, since you didn't put my dad out of business, just like you put every other wrestling promoter out in the 80s, since you couldn't do that, you figured the next best thing would be to kill his son off. Well, Vince, not only did I survive, but I walked out on you. And how ironic that is that we make a deal and get back together and you pay me, that's right, you pay me a whole lot more money the second go around. And you know why, Vince? You know why? Because you need Jeff Jarrett. You need me to put people in seats and ratings on the board. Vince, you told me to come out here tonight and shoot, and that's exactly what I'm doing, <laughs> right between your eyes. You can take with my baby tonight and stick it up your butt. Because from here on out, it's going to be Jeff Jarrett's way. And if you try, that's exactly right, if you try to stop me, fine. I'll gladly pack my bags and walk right out the door again. But Vince, I've got a question. 
I've got a question to ask you. Can you afford it? I don't think so, or you wouldn't have paid me all that money just five days ago. Speaking of shoots, show number three, it's Jeff Jarrett. And Jarrett's out early because he likes annoying Vince. Um, and, and Jarrett cuts the promo, the first half of which you've just heard. Um, you know, I, I, I was one of the best wrestlers in WCW. No, you weren't. I was misusing WCW. You probably weren't. I mean, you know, go back 12 months and you had Ric Flair endorsing you. You still couldn't get over. I was misusing the WWF. Well, perhaps you were. Um, I'm one of the hottest free agents in wrestling. Well, in the sense that you're one of the only free agents in wrestling, then yes. Um, and, uh, uh, and Jarrett basically, you know, um, I mean, Craig, it's probably an improvement on Jarrett trying to do this with my baby country, with my baby tonight, country simic singer gimmick. Um, but I, th- this was like, what the fuck's going on? Yeah, totally. When, when, I first saw this uh, promo, I was like, it's almost as if Jarrett's trying to disown the, the sort of characters of his past, and it sort of made me think of when Matt Bourne debuted in ECW, and he was uh, sort of, remember when he's trying to discard the Doink character yeah, from when he was in the WWE? Yeah, and, and that was like hugely entertaining, because he believed in him being quite edgy, and how he was how he was actually held back, but you look at you look at Jeff Jarrett, and I, I don't—I didn't think anything in this promo was authentic. I mean, uh, as you just catalogued there, Bob, perhaps he was misusing the WWF. He certainly wasn't in WCW, but it, it did just seem like he was saying things that he didn't really probably believe himself. And as a result, we we're left looking at it being like, "Yeah, I'm not really sure that that's that's really the case." I mean, he—he's a—he's a man that, uh, as as we stand in. Uh, 1997, he spent the best part of four or five years in our screen, sorry, on our screen in either WCW or WWF and I mean, I've never really sort of had any sort of strong feelings one way actually or the other towards him. I just think he's always just been sort of a bit meh and a bit middle of the road. So, I, I like the concept of what he was doing, sort of coming in and being like the WWF misused me, they made me this country singer waste of space, blah, 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 blah. But I'm sure there were countless guys that the w, during maybe 94, 95 that the WWF used as a joke character that they could have done this shtick with and it would have been a lot more authentic. And, yeah, I just... I, I literally don't know if there is anything at all that can make me care about Jeff Jarrett. Roy, would it be fair to say Jarrett's interview the following week, the sit-down with JR, was a little bit more productive? I think it probably was when he sat down with JR because I I do think JR knows how to handle situations like this. I think he prepped him with good questions and he kept JR on the straight and narrow, so to speak. Although I did have to, I did have to laugh when Jarrett seemed to be implying that he's a world-class wrestler. No, you're not, mate. Since we've started this project, you've had three very good matches. One of those was with Shawn Michaels, the other two with Dean Malenko. So go figure. Yes, now Jeff Jarrett is the latest person to just go ahead and say what you think out there, pal. And But nobody cared, though. Nobody cared when he was the evil country singer. Nobody cared when he was the evil country singer 
who couldn't sing. Nobody cared when he was the man leading the charge against the NWO. Ho, ho, ho. Nobody cared when he was a kind of sort of horseman. Nobody cared when he was feuding with Steve McMichael. And nobody cares when he's himself, supposedly, in the ring, or even sat down with JR, talking about how amazing he is and how wonderful it was that he told Eric Bischoff to stick his contract. Jeff Jarrett is Jeff Jarrett, and he will always be Jeff Jarrett, no matter how much he or anybody else tries to tell me different. He knows it, you know it, the whole world knows it. I really do not know what they've got in store for him in the ring as a character. Is he just going to be Jeff Jarrett, as he said in the sit-down interview, that he wants to be? But if he's got nothing, then what does he have? I'm um, uh, I'm sceptical about this. I would have just brought Jarrett in as a character. I wouldn't have had him shoot down WCW. And I'll be honest, I was... I was pretty excited when Vince, about after about 15 minutes of, of Raw that week, said, well, we're going to be joined by a WCW champion. I don't think I'm the only one who, 10 minutes later, his heart sank when Jeff freaking Jarrett on my walk down the ramp. But yes, I've already mentioned... Vader. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that, 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 yeah. <laughs> I didn't know it be more true. Oh, yeah, all for it. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't say it was going to be somebody straight from WCW, did I? Oh, yes, the swerve. I bet Vince was probably thinking about that, yes. I, mean, I would have taken any of those. I would probably have taken Firebreaker Chip over Jeff Jarrett. So, yes, there you go. Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't know that it it's a good idea to have Jack Jarrett say they pushed all these other guys instead of me because it's just a reminder that there's so many better acts in WCW than there probably are in the WWF when we're going to reflect on how much Jarrett's pushed. Um, Literally this, every other guy. <laughs> yes. Um, this promo was weird. Um, you know, again, everyone shoots and everyone gets the rib on McMahon, which kind of seems to me to defeat the point of it. Like the, you know, Austin kind of got over slash is getting over because he can pick on McMahon. If if Jarrett starts doing it and Road Dog starts doing it and, you know, anyone starts doing it, I, I think it just makes McMahon look weak rather than the, the strength that Austin has been able to gain from being able to do it. Um, and Jarrett comes out and makes a lot of points. Most of them don't really make sense. Um, you know, I, as I say, I think his interview the following week with... JR made a bit more sense. You know, he was talking about how he, he felt he was undervalued in WCW. Um, whether that's true or not, I don't know. But there's certainly something he said for the fact that there was probably a ceiling to his potential in WCW just because of the way that works. That's definitely true. Although, again, I don't know that you want to be presenting Jack Jarrett as a guy WCW didn't think was good enough. Um, as much as you might be able to say that about Steve Austin, as much as the other names you might be able to say that about... I don't know that you ought to be able to, particularly with a guy like Jeff Jarrett, well, here's the guy that WCW didn't have any space for, but we're going to push him like a main eventer. Um, But because we're all shooting now, Jarrett's able to say, I think they got me at a great price. He's right. He's able to say, I don't take steroids. He's right. And he's able to say, I'm quite a dependable guy. He put me in the right position. He's also right. Um, the big problem you've got, as I said before about Eric Bischoff, is that Vince McMahon is going to wake up at some point in the next three months and go, oh shit, it's Jeff Jarrett. That's <laughs> that's the problem. That's the big problem here. It's just Jeff Jarrett. Um, and I, I don't know what the big plan is. 
that being said, was is there a better version of Jeff Jarrett? You how, could you put Jeff Jarrett in in a better way? I don't necessarily know. Um, but I think the promo on the final week was probably a tad more effective, i.e. less shit, than the promo we have just heard. Um, and so, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know what the plan is with Jarrett, but but then again, I, I think it's a good career move for Jarrett, even if it's a bit sideways, as we've seen with other guys that have moved across. It's certainly more upward mobility in the WWF, but it is Jeff Jarrett. No, we didn't ask for this opportunity to speak. We asked for this opportunity to come out here and ask you and to address why is there racism here in the World Wrestling Federation when you just said yourself last week or two weeks ago that there wasn't. Now you tell me what's that all about. Let's take this one step at a time, please. On behalf of whomever it was that was responsible for the vandalism in your locker room, and to a certain extent, the racial slurs. On behalf of the World Wrestling Federation, we apologize for, for what happened. Oh, you apologize. Do you think you can come out here and apologize to me for over 400 years of what we call antagonizing, slavery, washing your cars, taking care of your kids, building your houses, building this country, and you think you can apologize just like that? Well, let me tell you something, man. I'm a new breed of black man, like the nation is. Hey, I'm going to tell you how we are. Did you know what your apology is to me? This is how we take apologies. With these and with this. Oh, wait just a minute. There is no racism here in the World Wrestling Federation. We don't allow it. We'll allow it under any circumstances. And that's the bottom line. Well, I'll tell you what. Ask my brother Rocky right here. Is there any racism here in the World Wrestling Federation? Well, let's not. Let's get off this subject, all right? Let's go to something else. We don't need to drive this into the ground. Let's get off this subject. Rocky? You know, if you just shut your mouth for a second and listen to what I have to say, you might educate yourself. Heart Foundation, with what you did last week, you crossed the line you should never have crossed. Because now it is a black and a white thing. You know, and being a straight shooter I am, I've dealt with racism and discrimination all of my life. You can hear the response, and that's the capacity crowd. And each and every time I was knocked down, I damn sure popped right back up. So Heart Foundation, I'm going to show you what it's like to deal with discrimination all of your life. But the difference between you and me is, is when I knock your asses down, you won't get back up. Heart Foundation, it all started with a boat ride, but it's going to end with a bike fist right on the side of your, on your white ass. I wish 
are challenging you to a, a match next week right here. And if you got the guts like you all say you do, then you'll accept the challenge. Come out here and show these people what kind of challenge. And wait a minute, that, that challenge just might be answered. Here comes the hitman Bret Hart. Here comes Baby Boy Smith, Owen Hart, Jim the Anvil, not Hart, the entire Hart Foundation out here to answer these accusations. First of all, brothers, brothers, we accept any challenge you want to make to any kind of match you want to make, consider it done. But more importantly, I want you to understand that I come from a country where there is no racial prejudice. We don't hate black people, we don't hate brown people, we don't hate yellow people. In Canada, we love people for what they are inside, and that's the plain, basic truth. You people may kid yourselves, but you know that the United States of America is riddled with racial prejudice, and you don't have to pick an argument with me to get someone to agree. But I think your problem, Farouk, is that you can't see that somebody's messing with you. And you know, and I know, that Shawn Michaels and his boy toy, Hunter Helmsley, are the ones responsible for all the problems right now between you and me. The final war of the month begins in Tulsa, Oklahoma, with Vince apologising to the nation for the defacing of their locker room last week. Fruit doesn't want to hear it though, and he still believes the WWF is racist. My via takes the mic to a chorus of Rocky Sucks chants and he tells the foundation they've crossed a line they never should have crossed. Brett and Co appear on the ramp. He accepts any challenge that the nation wants to make but knows that the real people responsible is for DX. They are of course butted on the Tron. Sean compares Brett and the Hearts to the Grand Wizard and the KKK. No, you didn't mishear that. The LOD sees their moment and attack the foundation. Brett's ankle gets injured in the melee. Match time now and it's Goldust versus Helmsley, we've said that a lot this year. HBK is out on commentary and barely even pauses for breath or out. Marlena slaps Triple H on the outside but China takes the opportunity to hit Goldust with a bloody purse. We're out after a pedigree. Back to Cornet's corner, he's looking at icons today which he uses as a jumping off point to give his thoughts on Hogan and Piper from Halloween Havoc. You can probably guess what they are, but he does at least finish with this singer. Hogan, you are a household word, but so is garbage. And that stinks when it gets old too. Owen defends the IC title against Armored Johnson. Johnson's about to hit the power of a plunge, but Austin makes his weekly dash through the stands to blast him with a stunner. Owen wins with a DQ. Jim Ross interviews Mankind in the ring. Paul Bearer has, his broke, has broken their unspoken truth, and now he has no choice but to make his life a living hell. He wants a match with Kane, but Slaughter, though, cannot sanction it due to Mankind's unstable mental condition. Foley saying please also doesn't work, but maybe the mandible claw that he ends up giving the Sarge might. Once again, we have a big segment at the top of the second hour. Today, it's Brett defending the WWF title against Ken Shamrock. Ken acquits himself well during this one and gets Hart to tap out with the ankle lock, but only after a ref bump. 
Hitman responds with a chair shot to the back before he can put on the sharpshooter. Michaels interferes and gets some of Brett. Charlotte takes exception to that and then beats the tar out of HBK. Ken then angrily stomps off and Hart and Michaels go at each other and again. Backstage, Brett tells us that he's back to where he was a long time ago, complaining about Shawn Michaels. After Survivor Series, though, that will be the end. Michaels will be excellently executed. Road Dogg and Billy Gunn defeat the new Blackjacks. Gunn hits Bradshaw with a chair and Dog gets the pin. Paul Bearer comes out. Mankind is just a little pebble on Kane's path to destruction. Undertaker will live in hell until he faces up and meets his brother. We're in DX's locker room. Michaels gets to speak his mind to the hitman by mooning us all. JR asks, what become? What has become of us? Mark Vero versus Flash Funk. Once again, the low-blow TKO combination gets it done for Mero. Jim Ross sits down for an interview with Jeff Jarrett. He never wanted to become Double J, but McMahon insisted. He calls his walkout after In Your House 2 one of the greatest days of his life, because when he left the arena, he was no longer controlled by Vince. In WCW though, there was no ladder for opportunity because he wasn't one of Bischoff's boys. True in-ring ability does not count in WCW. This interview will continue next week. LOD defending the tag titles against Los Barricos in our main event. In our second period to win your house 2 of the evening, Hawk pings Miguel after a botched trip by Road Dog. We close with a classically incoherent Armour Johnson promo, the gist of which being he wants Steve Austin. How dare you! How dare you, Bret Hart, blame the Generation X for your action? Now everybody knows the Grand Wizard there, Bret Hart, is racist to the core. You saw what he did to the nation's locker room. The Generation X agrees with the nation. This country was built on the sweat of a brow of a black man, and I accept that. The Generation X accepts that, but the Grand Wizard out there and the rest of his KKK buddies don't believe that. Farouk, it was the Hart Foundation all along. Bret Hart is in denial, and he's always in denial because he's concerned about his image. Oh yeah, and what an image that is, Hitman, with your little leather jackets. I heard your first choice for your outfits was white sheets and white hoods. Oh, no. That's real nice, Brad. Exactly. What about that image on Mad TV? Now, that was some kind of image. But the image you didn't hear about was the image he portrayed on Jerry Springer. And the reason you didn't know it was Bret Hart was simple. He had a white sheet over his head. Is that right, Hunter? Oh, that's definitely right. And what else? And I heard also, did you hear what I heard? Yeah, tell While us. they were changing paint cans when they were spraying the room, they used the N-word. Oh! Oh yeah, the N word. Wait a wait a minute. There's the nation, no the nation going up the map. The nation talking to Hart Foundation. And to the far award of the month. Um, this opening segment. Oh bloody hell! So we have to go back a week actually, just briefly. Um, there was uh, you know, Michael. They cut backstage to Michael Cole, who was meant to be doing an interview backstage with the Nation of Domination. And Cole's in the uh, in the nation locker room, and it's been completely destroyed. Like you know, they've ransacked the place. They've ransacked all of their all of their gear. You know, they spray painted things on the walls. They spray painted Malcolm X on the wall, and they spray painted "Go Back to Your Own Country." And there's a Oh Canada, and there's a Canadian flag. And essentially, the idea is, or the implication is, that either the Hart Foundation have done it, or someone has set it up to look like the Hart Foundation have gone in and defaced the nation domination locker room with racial slurs which is a bit weird 
as we come on to on this show. So we open with Farouk coming out with the rest of the nation. He talks to Vincent Mann. He says, you know, there's been, you know, you, you're, you're saying there's no race in the WWF or what's happened here. Vincent Mann kind of apologises for it, you know, even though it, it seems quite inconceivable they wouldn't be able to work out who'd done it. Um, but basically, the implication the week before, as it was here, was that the Nation of Domination were accusing the Hart Foundation as to having done it. And they kind of did it last week, and the Hart Foundation came out and ostensibly just had a match with them. And this week, the Hart Foundation come out, and Bret Hart says, where I'm from, we treat everyone equally. But does it actually deny any of the actual accusations? Like, it was a classic political answer, not an answer to the question of, did you do this? Where I'm from, we treat everyone equally and then just move on. And then this whole thing, and it's all really weird, and it's like they, they, they put Brett in a no-win situation alongside the rest of the Heart Foundation. But on the screen comes Sean, Triple H, China, and Rick Ruiz, we now call Degeneration X. And Sean, who's kind of, you know, a bit out of it, let's say that, basically just, I, I'm going to have to replay it. Like, I, I can't believe I'm saying this. Sean says, amongst other things, the Grand Wizard and the rest of the KKK. And you're just like, what the fuck? Obviously, you know, point at Brett and the rest of the foundation. And then Triple H says, you know, it's interesting to see the gear you guys have chosen to wear. I figured it might have been more white sheets. And you're just like, okay. And then the segment doesn't really go anywhere. At one point, they cut to Brett on the on the stage, and Brett looks at Owen and just mouths the word "stupid" at him. Um, and then eventually the DX keep talking, and then the nation go right. I've had enough of this because at one point Triple H says, "Oh, we heard they used the N word." It doesn't make any sense. Like there's there's none of this makes any sense. And the nation come out and beat them up, and Rory that's it. And I've got. No worldly clue what they were attempting with any of this. Because all of this was signed off. I'm not saying they wrote it. They've given clearly given Sean and the guys a lot of freedom. But let's be clear about this. This is written. Vincent Mann has approved all this. And I have no worldly clue what this is building towards, what they're trying to achieve, who this is meant to entertain, who I'm supposed to like. I don't, who the fuck am I supposed to like in this segment? Um, Roy, I've got no idea. You're not the only one, my friend. And all of this, thir- 13 days away from Bret Hart versus Shawn Michaels 2 at uh, Survivor Series 1997. And this is how you are choosing to build it. Yes, you're up against it from the start with the fact that both these guys are heels. Understand that. Yet, do not, I repeat, do not build the match by making your challenger appear like a complete and utter prick who doesn't even care about the world title. A couple of weeks earlier, he called it a stupid piece of tin, or words to that effect. And do not, no matter how much he is badmouth America, no matter how much he is supposedly the top bad guy, whatever, that's fine, I accept that. But do not suggest or compare him in any way, shape or form to the Grand Wizard, for God's sake. Why are we going there? And worse... And worse, is that at no point whatsoever did Bret Hart deny it. If you are accused of being a racist or any derogatory to any minority group at all, if you if you if you no, if you are accused of such a horrible thing, you instantly, 
instantly denies it is the truth. Brett didn't. He told us that Canada isn't riddled with, 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 with racial prejudice. Okay, but what about you, mates? You've got the mic. Just say it. Just say it wasn't us. Yes, we don't particularly love America very much, but we would never, ever stoop this low. Just say it. But you didn't. And I'm like, what? It's as if that for some reason they had to try to really go there, so to speak, to try to bring the nation into this feud. And the nation have no part in this whatsoever. Why they are, uh, why there is even any form of a triangle here when it should just be this guy here against this guy here finally facing each other for the world title. We brought the nation in there for some reason. We brought them in there with horrible, horrible overtones. And to use one of my famous phrases, nobody gets over. Before the ultimate dream match that we're about to get. What are they playing at? Craig. I hear you're a racist now, Brett. Fuck it. Nothing. Okay. Uh, (laughs) It's a Father Ted reference. Nothing. I got it. I got it. I got it. it. Thanks. Uh, Yeah, I I mean, there are so many issues with this. Like, so many. But I think, from a wrestling standpoint, the biggest one is, this doesn't make me want to go and buy Survivor Series. It doesn't make me care any more about the main event. It doesn't... I want to watch the rest of the show. Forget about Survivor Series. No, exactly, but I mean, ultimately the whole point is, I guess, if there is a point building towards Survivor Series, but yeah, no, you're right, it doesn't make me want to watch the rest of Raw. It doesn't invest me at all in this angle. It it, it sort of repels me, the idea that the nation who... other than The Rock and, to a lesser extent, Farouk, are jobbers. I don't feel that they need to be in this. Yeah, I, I think it's just completely flawed. From from start to finish, it's flawed. The the racist stuff is as bad, if not worse, than the, the homophobic stuff previously. Yeah, I, I, I don't like it. It doesn't sit, sit well with me. There, there's been edgy and there's been offensive, like I said earlier, and this is this has fallen uh, certainly into the uh, the latter category. It just it's, it seems really stupid. The Grand Masters, yeah, it's just awful, awful, awful stuff. Yeah, um, good luck picking this segment apart. I mean, I, I don't, I don't understand any of it. Like, I, you know, like, the, the angle's set up, but I'm going to bet good money there'll be no payoff to it, which is strange. It doesn't, you know, if, if I think about this through to its conclusion, it doesn't seem all that illogical that they couldn't work out who did it. I'm assuming there are cameras around the locker room, one would think. Um, And is it... Is it not up for, for, you know, if this was storyline, is it not up to the WWE to have an internal investigation over who did this and then fire who did this? And if it turned out that it was Bret Hart, then fine. But that's this weird implication we've got right now. And I, I, I like some things cannot be settled in the ring. That's the point here. Some things are not, oh, let's see what edgy we can do. Yeah, let's stab someone, then rather than sue them for it, oh, let's have a wrestling match. It doesn't make sense. You cannot settle everything inside a wrestling ring. Some storylines do not make sense in a wrestling context, and this is one of them. And the whole, you know, like this, because if we if we have Bret Hart say, no, it wasn't me, it will get him over as a face, and we don't want him to be a face, I don't really know if that even makes sense. Sure, Michael's being a dick. I don't know who approved that line of verbiage 
you know, I know it's like, well, Shawn Michaels accuses Brett of being the Grand Wizard, and that gives Brett reason to feed up. No, it doesn't. It gives Brett reason to fucking kill the guy, right? Or it should do. I know he kind of got at him later in the later in the show, but I, I, I don't know what they're trying to achieve. I don't know who gets over here. I don't know who I'm supposed to like. Strip away the controversial nature of the topic. There's a more general point over Brett and Sean. Their, their build seems to be shit or in Canada. Brett's going to get cheered out the building, but we can't set him up to get cheered anywhere else because it'll look weird. Sean's going to get booed, therefore we've got to get him over as a heel so he explains why he gets booed. The nation that are ostensibly heels... And just this whole set of angles. I mean, it's helping Austin right now. And, you know, they better hope Austin gets fit because there's no other baby faces left. Um, I I do not know. I don't know what the hell they were thinking. Um, I, I'd be surprised if this angle has a payoff. I, you know, I, I, I don't know. Like, the implication seems to be the nation seemed to have accused two people of possibly doing this. One was the Hart Foundation, the other one was Steve Austin. But they're not in, in name, in implication, in terms of who they've fought since. And neither man has come out and denied it. Um, that's a bit weird. Just one um, more thing quickly on this one, Bob. Oh. I know the, the company's in a very different place to where it was in uh, the spring of 1995, but this isn't the first time we've done a Bret Hart might be a racist angle. Do you remember when he was supposedly racist against Japanese people during the Hakushi feud? Yes. I was half expecting Sean to bring out a severed head at some point. Yeah. Um, what a weird place to go. Twice. Weird. Yeah, because it worked so well the first time. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, anyway, let's move on. Uh, we're kind of in any other business, as is the as is the way with, with TV at the moment. So much going on. Uh, I'll start us off. Uh Craig, let's talk about Kane. We didn't really do much about it on him in the pay-per-view review because it was, there was so much going on with the match. <laughs> um, Kane's presentation this month largely has been absolutely excellent. Uh, yes, it has. Uh, it does make you think that that's probably not going to last too much longer. Uh, but yes, no, they've uh, they, they haven't missed yet. They've. Uh, they made him look really demonic. Uh, he was a lot scarier than I expected him when he debuted. I was worried about how he would look. I thought they may go down the cheesy route, but they've actually made him look... Uh, Fucking yeah, terrifying. Yep, uh, they, they certainly have. The Yeah, and I mean, he just looks like an absolute monster. Uh, it could When I was watching the Bad Blood main event, when he was ripping the cage door off, that could have went in the same sort of way as the Shockmaster. No, like if he hadn't been able to rip it open and he just looks completely lost and has to sort of find the keys to unlock it, he would have been doomed from the start. But as soon as he was able to rip that door from its hinges, he just looked like a monster. The Undertaker legitimately looked scared, and I'm not entirely sure when the last time that happened was. And then... Probably when he was facing karma. Quite possibly. Yeah, Uh, but uh, we're going back back a few years. Well, well, more scared in a different way. Like, scared for his own push when he's got to try and get a good match out of karma. Yeah, Yeah, he was was worried about his career at that stage, but I think this time he was worried about his life. Uh, And yeah, he came overpowered him, and and that's one of the first times for that as well. So yeah... out of ten for for Kane so far, uh, from the from the creepy hype to the terrifying debut, I think it's a, I think it's ten out of ten. 
Craig just unsolicited scores there. Uh, Rory, uh, it, it's better than a, a, an Evil Dead gimmick, right? Oh, oh, on the right scale as well. I would give him, yes. I would give it five out of five. <laughs> yes, well, well, given that you weren't asked, you could have graded it any way you liked. Uh, Rory, but a better than Evil Dentist, I think, is a is a good place to start. It is indeed. It is much better than Evil Dentist. It is much better than uh, a human truck. After that gimmick had already been done, it is also much better than. Well, it's Christ- better than an imitation of a human truck. <laughs> Precisely. And also better than, I think it was the Christmas creature, where his character was basically a living, breathing uh, Christmas tree. But we will move on quickly from that. Not even Vince went to those depths, but I bet he did think about it. Yeah, Kane's presentation has been excellent. He is an absolute beast in every sense of the word. That mask, it could have looked really cartoonish, but it looks genuinely menacing. Uh, just look at those eyes and... The fact it's even been cut into what looks like a sort of a smile around the lips. I love little, just a lovely little touch like that. This guy just looks pure evil, and he has got the ultimate score to settle. And I think we, I don't really think we're no, <laughs> speaking out of turn here by saying that we're going to be getting the Undertaker Kane at WrestleMania. That's what the sheets are saying, and I think they're absolutely right. The golden rule of professional wrestling. Denying something is going to happen means it's going to happen. So when The Undertaker appeared in that brief promo on one of the Raws this month saying, I will never fight Kane, you might as well book that match for WrestleMania right now. But yes, he's destroying everybody. He's coming out to the ring when he wants to, laying waste, looking like a complete, absolute, terrifying monster. And Paul Bearer doesn't really need to do anything. Whenever he's been called onto the mic, it's been superfluous at best, really. And I think Mankind is a good first opponent for Kane. He's going to throw himself around, make everything that Kane does look completely devastating, which I do think he needs because this is a very technical point, and I feel a bit guilty for bringing it up, but I'm still going to. One thing uh, Jacobs does need to work on is the Tombstone pile driver. He hasn't really got it right. He's dropping to his knees a bit early. So for somebody who's supposed to be an absolute, I'm going to use the word, killer, he probably needs to work on that. But yeah, the presentation, first class. Yeah, it's an interesting comparison to draw, but I, I, I think if if I'm WWF, I, I'm following the Goldberg route here, and I'm just having Kane plow through people for a while. I'm quite surprised they picked out Mankind so early, in that sense. In that I don't think this character's going to make sense if he has a 12-minute back and forth with Mankind and beats him with a choke slap, you know, or a tombstone, or whatever. Move out, he's going to copy off from Undertaker. Um, you know, to, to me, it's like the the mystery would be just having plow through guys, and then it's like what happens at WrestleMania. And by that point, you can kind of make the call. Um, you know, if, if Kane's going that well, having beat Undertaker, I don't think that's that's that silly an idea. Um, but yeah, again, we we talk about less being more, and that's been a you know, that's going to be one of the stories of the year when we get to it. The two guys that are most overcome the end of the year are going to be Steve Austin and Sting. Neither of which, well, Sting hasn't wrestled at all this year, and Austin's been in and out. Um, you know, uh, I, I think like it's all about presentation, about you know limiting a guy's exposure, and if they get this right, that's a hell of a look. Like we talk about Bob Goldberg having a look. This guy's got a look right now. Um, whoever put that together deserves a ton of credit because they're like. That that could have really easily looked shit. Um, it really could have. It would have blown the whole angle straight away if it had come out. It wouldn't have been a great look. They really could have ruined that. 
Um, they've got it right. The presentation's right. I like the music. I like the the, the, the kind of red mood lighting. Um, he looks shit scary, which is the idea. Um, I think he's going to get over. They present him right, and if they limit his in ring time, because um, we've seen we've seen him before as as Isaac Yankum. He's not bad in the ring, but they're going to have to find an in ring style that suits this character. Um, fortunately, though, I don't think he's going to have to be exposed all that much in the ring. Although I would think so. Um, right, we are on to any other business now. Rory, you, you've seen all the TVs this month. Any, anything that comes up we haven't already discussed? Yeah, something I want to bring up, which actually we didn't get to see on TV. Somebody I thought we might get to see on TV. It's been talked about in the sheets for a couple of months, and that's Yokozuna. Uh, he was originally uh, scheduled to come back uh, this last week, end of the month, I believe. But uh, he had a physical, which he failed due to, and I quote from one of the sheets, obesity and an irregular heartbeat. He was said to still weigh in excess of £600. Um, I'm just going to throw this out there. And there's no pun intended in this particular phrasing, but where would Yokozuna have fit? Was he really the sort of person that we're looking to bring back now anyway? Isn't he a bit of a cartoon character these days? I know, Bob, you're a big fan of him and his facial expressions, but maybe they've kind of dodged a bullet here. What do you think? Um, I, I kind of wonder if WCW might be more interested in him. Yep. Um, just as a as a gimmick shot, um, you know they, they they brought back Piper to you know for Hogan to beat. Not that he ever actually did, I don't think. Um, but yes, in the WWF, like they, you know, they're talking about pairing up with Vader again. It's like we've done that before. Um, no, there isn't a lot for him, particularly if he's not in any kind of shape. And you get Yokozuna back to where he was in ninety three, ninety four. You could probably work it out. But if it's ninety six Yokozuna, then then no. Yeah, 96 Yokozuna was pretty horrendous. I, mean, I still have nightmares of him showing up at Survivor Series last year. And he was so huge. He could barely even stand up on the apron. He was using the ropes to support himself, which was sad to see. Uh, Craig, what do you think? Uh, it's difficult to really add anything more than, than what Bob said. I'd have probably argued the, the WCW route as well, the, the idea of... Hogan using his sway to, to give him a, the win over the guy that, I guess, forced him out of the WWF, if you will. Uh, yeah, no, I, I can't see anything for a, a, a sumo wrestler in 1997, especially not one that's, what, over £600? Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a no for me as well. Yokozuna yeah. and Hulk Hogan will be an absolute disaster as a... As a the would it be any worse than some of their main events, though? Oh, it would be five years on. Um, yeah. No, no, no. I mean, some of the WCW main events. Oh, uh, depends what one you're on about. I mean, it, it, it might be worse, but it probably couldn't be as crazy. Um, you know, <laughs> True. <laughs> which really, as we know now, is just the only met the only measurable metric for WCW main events is how mental they are. I forget quality. It's just how batshit crazy are they? Uh, Rory, anything else on on the AOB? Uh, no, I think I, I think we pretty much covered everything in the TV that we really want to talk about. Unless you want to talk about the LOD winning the tag team titles at the um, uh, combined age of six hundred and twenty-five. Uh, and wait, um, <laughs> uh, not not especially. Um, they did a decent job on that second show. I suppose they they, they wanted something to fill a, a tape show. But to me, the LOD are the best, of a very bad bunch in the uh, WWF tag team. Right? Yeah, I brought it up especially just because they did again. It's another one they hyped throughout the show. They had sit-down segments where they were talking in their normal voices, still have nothing interesting to say, of course, but uh, no baby steps and all that. Yeah, Craig, I know you're our, you're our tag team boy. It's, uh, surely even you, you don't want to see the LOD with the straps in 1997. 
Do you? Don't let me uh, know. No, not not not. No, no, not not terribly at all. No, I th- I think the I thought their act was getting quite tired uh, around about maybe even nineteen ninety two sort of WWF time. I th- I thought th- they were a wee bit more interesting, and Bill Hawk was a wee bit more interesting when he got a bit of a solo run in WCW afterwards. But yeah, no, I I, I think they are. I don't think they're the 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 future of uh, WWF tag team wrestling. Although that segues quite nicely into the fact that. Uh, we have also this month in TV seen the debut of a new tag team with uh, two superstars putting dodgy gimmicks to the side to uh, in Jesse James and Billy Gunn to form a team. So maybe that might be one for the watching. Uh, as in two holes being almost as little as the sum of their parts. Absolutely, it's two guys. It's a, it's a classic. Two guys doing absolutely nothing. Let's throw them together and see what happens. But Who but knows? They're, but they're still rubbish, right? I mean, you know, they, they're absolutely terrible. Although credit where credit's due, the the way that uh, I mean, we were talking about how uh, Jeff uh, Jarrett segued on from a bad gimmick. Billy Gunn segued on quite nicely by smashing a guitar over the honky tonk man's head. And now wearing just this terrible kind of blue blazer and trousers and whatever the hell it is. It's um, not the greatest of starts. <laughs> no, I, I'll believe it when I see it where those two are concerned. Anything else, Craig, on the on the any other business? No, I think we covered everything. It was a, an action-packed uh, month, particularly when it comes to crazy segments when we're when we're uh, when we're talking about uh, Raw. I don't, if anything, I might have talked. I was going. To, I had on my notes maybe a wee bit more discussion about uh, Mark Miro, but I've clearly wrote them in a, a weekend and foolish moment because I don't think anyone needs to hear any more about Mark Miro. I think we covered that at the pay-per-view, certainly that. So uh, let's 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 come firmly back into 2017. Not that there's necessarily anything much new on this topic, just more. I think it's something best handled out of uh, out of timeline. Um, the passing of Brian Pillman, um, obviously something that's been read about a lot this month, given that it is the 20-year anniversary of it. Um, we discussed it where relevant during the show, but I tried to kind of limit that to where it was relevant rather than, than anything else. Um, Craig, uh, you're reading a lot of the obituaries written about Pillman at the time and some of the stuff written about him now. Um, you know, I, I, I got the sense of a guy very well liked and you know obituaries you know you generally are nicer about someone than you perhaps would be before they die but there are a lot of people really writing positively about them and, and it's not like it's not like Pelman wouldn't have given people reason not to like him given sometimes the way he acted around people and sometimes some of the decisions that he made um, but I, I thought it was telling of a guy that seemed to very well like some of the stories from guys that you wouldn't perhaps expect Mark Madden obviously we, you know, I, was, I was about to introduce him in timeline people know who Mark Madden is Eric Bischoff you know talk, there was a, a very interesting line about um, about Pilm Bischoff told Pellman, if you ever want to come back, just turn up and we'll give you a spot. Don't worry about negotiating or contracts, just turn up and we'll work it out. Um, and Pillman was one of the um, Bischoff was one of the guys that attended his funeral. Uh, Craig, Pillman strikes is a guy that was very difficult to dislike. Um, and that seemed to come through in everything everyone's written about him. Yeah, it's it's almost like universal praise. And I mean, I know you tend to get that 
uh, sort of immediately after someone's death, but 20 years later, it's still quite tricky to find anyone that, that has a, a bad word to say about them. I mean, my, my sort of early memories are sort of seen, I think actually maybe the first Pillman match I ever saw was the War Games, when was it 91, when Sid nearly killed him? Yeah, 91. With a power bomb? Yeah, yeah, uh, that's one of my uh, sort of abiding memories, and then sort of seeing uh, sort of this '95 series with uh, Justin Luger and things like that. Just sort of uh, incredible, incredible matches, and then sort of by the time he'd found himself back in, uh, sorry, not back in, but by the time he'd found himself in WWF in '97, he was he was completely different. Sure, the the sort of way that he got there was was absolutely incredible, but it was a sort of broken down Pillman and. Clearly from when you hear about his sort of earlier life and his battles to overcome cancer and his time in American football, he was uh, he was a guy that never shirked from a challenge and was, was good for overcoming obstacles. But I think sort of from, I guess, 96, 97, they were just obstacles that were, uh, were too great for him. And I guess it's sort of telling that we're now talking about him 20 years on, just as uh, his son, Brian Pillman Jr., sort of making tentative steps in the... In the wrestling business, but an incredible athlete when Pillman uh, was healthy. But the scene, and as we've, as we've well documented, I guess in the last maybe four or five months of of these podcasts, it's, it's quite tragic seeing the sort of limited uh, nature of his uh, of his work in his final few months with the in the wrestling business. Well, well done to Craig for not being the first person on this show to call him Jushin Luger. Uh, the uh... Whatever that, that Liger, sorry, sorry. Whatever that, uh, whatever that brings up, uh, Rory. It's Lex Luger under a mask. Yes, that I really want to see that. Um, but there we are. Go, Rory. Oh, not the old Luger Liger thing again. <laughs> we can't even blame also correct this time. Anyway, yes, uh, Pillman's popularity. I think that might well have a lot to do with the fact that he really did understand the business and. He never let the business defeat him. And I think a lot of people in all organisations really appreciated and understood that. He he just got it, quite frankly. Even when he was when he first came into WCW and he was a happy, clappy, smiling baby face. He was the happy, clappy, smiling baby face. He knew exactly how to be one, both inside the ring and outside. He knew when to smile, he knew when to feed. He knew when to celebrate. He, d- he just knew. And in those matches with Luger in 1989, he made that that, that guy, this is, this is barely only a few months after Pillman had come in, he made Lex Luger, you know, £300 worth of nothing, look like a world beater. And again, I think that might also play into his backstage popularity. If you're put in there with Pillman, you're going to look good at this time. Can we blame Brian on- Pillman for 1994 then? Uh, 94. As in, if, if Pillman doesn't get a great match out of Luger, do WCW push him hard enough to the WWF side him, and do they push him, do they make the Lex Express? Ah, right, okay. Um, <laughs> I don't really think we can pin that one on him, I think. I suspect WCW were behind him anyway, right? <laughs> without, without a doubt, yes. I think they use the phrase cognitive dissonance for that sort of thing. Anyway, where were we? If you go back and watch Pillman matches now from 89, 1991, they probably do look a little bit tame. But again, you've got to, you know, the the time and the territory. We're, here, we're deep south here. You know, these people 
had never seen a drop kick off the top rope before. You know, it's like life on Mars stuff. My God, he just jumped off the top rope with a drop kick. Oh, my God. It's, and again, Pillman just understood that. That's going to get people to pop in a Southern wrestling promotion in the late 80s. So when he really was able to show his absolute working chops with that match with Liger at Super Bowl two, which I think that match is damn near revolutionary. It was a, a real game changer, a real corner turner in North American wrestling, in which it put work rate front and centre and told a great story and provided a great feel-good babyface with babyface moment at the end with a handshake. It did everything you want from North American wrestling with the best of Japanese wrestling, and it was two of the very best doing so. Pillman in the ring never quite ascended to those heights again. He bumped along a bit until the Hollywood Bronze came along, and they were a great heel tag team. And as he, he toned down his in-ring as he needed to as a heel, and he was fantastic at it. Yet, if you watch back now, as brilliant as he was playing at heels, fantastic with Austin, one of my favourite tag teams of all time, you get the sense that he really would still like to have been the real flying Brian. And things like that, when you jump ahead a bit with the injury he suffered, and it did his ankle in. He had to have it fused just to be able to walk properly. If you watch some of the segments in 1997, WWF as great as they were, you can see it in his eyes that he couldn't do it anymore. And he was all too aware that he couldn't do it. And I think ultimately now looking at things with 20 years distance, it was that that made him turn to painkillers, anything just to numb, not just the physical pain. I think he was on some of those already. I don't think... Uh, oh, sure, oh, sure, yeah. If you, if you read back... Increases his dependency on stuff like... Yeah, oh, yeah absolutely. And in all fairness, the, the excellent obituary that Dave Meltzer wrote at the time, he very much draws attention to that going back to the early 90s. So, yeah, accepted 100%. I think that was it. He just knew that he couldn't be Flying Brian anymore. And if you watch his matches that we've talked about in the course of this pod over the last four or five months, it's, it's fitful at best and it's downright... Awful at worst, and sometimes it's almost hard to keep in time machine mode when I've been saying, "Oh, Pillman uh, just didn't have it there." Knowing what was to come, it's uh, it's tough. It's uh, he's left us with a lot. I remain a huge Brian Pillman fan. He came along. It was for the last two years. Everything from the Horseman stuff, all the work shoe stuff. I respect you, Bookerman, ECW promos, all of that. He came along at the right time when the business was finally really moving towards people like him. And I do think he should take a lot of credit for the way the business ended 97 going into 98. And for all the problems that the Attitude Era itself does have, which we'll get to as we get to as we work through this project, I think he deserves an awful amount of credit for making things more real, less cartoonish, believability. And I really do think he will always be one of my all-time favourites, both in the ring and on the microphone. Yeah, I think you talk about him coming along at the right time. I think there's a good argument that he was the guy that led the led the charge. I mean, you're talking yeah. about a guy that was a, a cruiserweight before cruiserweights really were a thing. Not that he was the only guy. Like he he was the he was part of the you know he he trained in Calgary alongside Bret Hart and well, more alongside Owen Hart and alongside Chris Benoit and guys like that. He was part of that generation, and he was one of the guys that first brought that along. Um, and you know, like his story is a fascinating story. As you mentioned, boy, I mean, there's 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 plenty of great writing on the 
uh, on all of this this month. I mean, Dave Meltzer leads the way. There's a, a really nice piece in the Observer by Mark Madden, Bruce uh, Bruce Mitchell, and the Torch does a. Um, I said this month, 97, although I'm sure there's been a lot of stuff retrospectively 20 years on as well. Um, and yeah, like, you know, talk about a guy that had like 20 odd operations on his throat as he, when he was a kid, that kind of explained his voice. And talk about a guy that never had the height that really should have given any kind of chance in college football, and yet he, he, he made a good stab at that. Um, you know, and then talk about a guy that seemed to be well ahead of the curve. Talk about a cruiserweight that was a cruiserweight before anyone else was having those great matches. Was put in a tag team that neither the guy particularly wanted him to be in, but for a short while they made a a really good stab of it. Um, and then, yeah, like you look at. You just look at what happened with at the end of 95, early 96. Pelham was a guy that seemed to know what was going on, seemed to know what the industry was w- w- was going towards before many other people did. Um, and yeah, it's like, it, it, it's, it's a testament to him that in some respects, he didn't have that good of a career. When you look at stuff he accomplished, he was a, a guy that wrestled very, very good matches early on in his career, but didn't really do give that much of a dent in WCW. And then went to the WWF and was far too hurt to really make any waves there. And yet he's a name that everyone remembers, and in part because he died when he did. Um, you know, he died, kind of, you don't want to say in action, but he kind of did. And those are the guys you tend to remember because there's always that thought of what if versus, say, if he'd have died a couple of years after leaving the promotion. Um often say, like, you know, Dave Meltzer's been fielding questions this month. Would uh, would Brian Pillman have been a WWF main event in 98-99 had he stayed alive? The answer to that is almost unequivocally no, because Pillman just wasn't in shape. Um, his ankle wasn't in a position where he could have performed at any of the level that he did. And it's it, it, it's it's just part of the Brian Pillman story. I don't want to make light of his death, but it's almost like, you know, you talk about a guy that probably should have died the year before in that car crash when you read about how bad that was and how fast he was going and he he ended up like a hundred feet into a field or something like that having rolled his car four times and he his friends arrived in the hospital and they couldn't recognize him um you talk about a guy that just seemed to to live four or five lifetimes across 35 years and and leaves such of an impact on an industry where in some respects, he didn't stand out all that much in that he was a, a very good wrestler. Okay, before the time where very good wrestlers were commonplace, and he was a guy that spotted this shooty attitude type approach before many other people did. But he only achieved things in bits and pieces, and it is more the shame that one, you know, you know who knows what might have happened had he not have had that car accident i.e., you know, he was he was just a free agent at that point, signed by the WWF, and after that, they're like, well, we're paying you so much money, we need to get you back on the road, and Pillman took shortcuts to try and make that happen, including that extra dependency on pain pills, that extra dependency on muscle relaxers, and that kind of thing, and he pushed himself far more than his ankle had any right to do, even while he wasn't working. The story basically was, was that Pillman, because he was travelling so much, did damage to his ankle, and that meant they had to reoperate on it. And you know you don't want to you don't want to say what if at times like this or anything like that. But uh, a a guy that has a legacy, perhaps quite rightly, but perhaps one you wouldn't expect. As in, a lot of people look at Brian Pillman and go, "What if?" 
Um, and it's almost like if that if the guy at 35 was so ahead of the curve, what would he have noticed in 98, 99, 2000? Where would he have gone next? Um, well, it's a shame we never really get to find out, unfortunately. But, yeah, I think it's test me to guys say, I, I come back to what I said at the top, um, a guy incredibly well-liked. Strike me as the kind of guy that, you know, carried a lot of problems, but carried a lot of those problems kind of in your face almost. I and mean, there was very little, he was the guy easy to like because all the all of his issues were kind of out on the table. Um, and it strikes me that, you you know, reading comments from guys like Dave Meltzer and Eric Bischoff and Mark Madden, like a, a quite diverse group of people within the industry, but all were able to say, it's not that I just liked him, I considered him a friend. Um, I think that's testimony to, to, to what the industry lost. Um, you know, and it is a bit of a shame um, that we didn't get to see where he could have gone next. And who knows, maybe he never would have recovered from the ankle injury. But then again, I always kind of would have figured that if Pillman couldn't recover from the ankle injury, he could have done so much more. Pillman, as, even if it wasn't as an on-screen character, if the guy's got that good mind for the business, could have contributed so much storytelling-wise. Um, and just a shame that we never got a chance to see it. But, but there we are. Uh, Rory, any, any more than that? Yeah, uh, one specific point related back to our recent timeline. He wasn't even in the Heart Foundation, yet he was the best promo in the Heart Foundation by about several million miles. Which uh, I always, I think now, now we can probably talk about that. We can sort of review it. I just want to bring up what we thought about um, him in the Heart Foundation. Actually, he was always there with them. He was often waving the Canadian flag. He was part of Team Canada at a, a Canadian Stampede. Uh, did. <sighs> I was going to say he overshadowed the Hart Foundation. I'm not sure that's true. He didn't seem a natural fit other than the fact that he was trained in the dungeon. But I don't think they would have been the same and we'd still be talking about the Hart Foundation angle for all of its problems 20 years on if Pillman hadn't been involved because he was such a weird fit. And he, whenever he was called upon, he took them out of being four guys who can't cut a promo doing a very level 1A, we hate America thing. And he was able to pull it in a whole new directions whenever he was called upon. And as bizarre as it sounds, I almost think his role in this particular angle is understated. And I just wanted to take the opportunity to put it on record that despite even not being in the foundation, he was a very, very important part of it. All my favourite parts from 97 involving those angles are him, his I don't call 911 t-shirt, his... uh. His uh, promo about Dusty before the SummerSlam match just made me laugh. And all the Pillman XXX files, which whilst close to the bone, it was just so entertaining. Like I said in the time machine last month, he just made it work. And he goes out and says, you know, Dustin, tonight your wife and I are going to have hard times. Yeah, just, just, uh, just bravo. He was fantastic and... Um, he'd only be 55 today. So just, um, just, just, just think about that. Yeah. Craig, any more? It's difficult to really add add much more than what hasn't already been said. I, I would agree with him being sort of the most entertaining a- aspect of the Heart Foundation on uh, many occasions. Yeah, just, and, and Bob, you're probably right. I mean, maybe the WWF didn't know the sort of length that he was going to sort of rush himself back to, to wrestling but there's absolutely no danger someone as talented as him couldn't have found something that the, the WWF couldn't have found something else for him whether it was commentating working behind the scenes etc yeah I mean he had so so much more to give to to uh, 
to wrestling. It's, uh, it's st- even to this day, it's still an absolute tragedy that he, he and many, many others were taken away far too early. And then it was, then it was, gentlemen. Thank you very much for joining me back on this latest trip down the down our memory lane. Rory McIlroy, Rory, thank you very much. Cheers, fellas. Uh, Rory, where can people find you on Twitter? I'm on the Twitters at RawsDM. That is R O R S D M. Craig Wilson, Craig, thank you very much for joining us this afternoon. Been a been an absolute pleasure. It's uh, next seven is one of my favourite favourite months and it. Months, favourite years in uh, in wrestling. I would probably give it a rating of A, just to keep on that rating chat. Okay, you have to find out another. One. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, if uh, if anyone is interested in following my musings on the world of wrestling, uh, you can find my blog at ringthedambell.wordpress.com. It's a name that takes homage from significant events that take place next month in wrestling. Yeah, whatever they may be, eh? We'll, uh, we'll, we'll stick that at volume three, I think, behind uh, <laughs> a bit behind World War Three, behind ECW's pay-per-view. I don't think there's anything major to take from that. Uh, yes, uh, speaking of volumes, there are three others for you this month. Boy, number two takes us to WCW looking at Halloween Havoc. A balmy pay-per-view, that is. Uh, Volume number three to ECW. Uh, Eric makes his uh, presenting debut on the uh, on the latest chapter on ECW story. And volume number four, we'll go back and look at all the USC action. A reminder that you can find us on Patreon, uh, five bucks a month. You say thank you or get early access to our shows where possible. You can do so at patreon.com forward slash wrestling 20YRS. Links in the podcast description. And on our website, you can find us on our website wrestling20YRS.com. You can find me on Twitter at Bobby Bamba. The project on Twitter at Wrestling20RS, and that will do that. I've been Bob Bamber. This has been Volume 1 of the October 1997 edition of the Wrestling 20 Years Ago podcast. And until next time, goodbye.